Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kanan. Welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms, where I have deep conversations with individuals who are working at the cutting edge of emerging paradigms in our apocalyptic civilization. Well, today I'm very excited to have a special guest, Naja Abdussalam. Naja is a professional acupuncturist and crystal healing guide. In the past, she has worked in palliative care. Naja performs energy healing for clients suffering from emotional issues ranging from uh, deep depression and anxiety. Naja has been developing new methodologies for virtual healing experiences designed to shift our deepest beliefs and stories that continue patterns of suffering. And she has also been reconnecting with deeper levels of our soul uh, into our daily lives while well, she has been working with uh, these new modalities. So welcome, Naja. That's so a big intro. You. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I hope I did. I, I covered some, uh, all the stuff, but yeah, um, you pretty much did. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So I've been looking, uh, for this conversation. We've, we've known each other for, I don't know, for a good five years, I think. Yeah. Uh, me. But, but we haven't talked to each other in, in a little while. Okay. And, uh, I always felt like we had to connect. I felt like a deeper kindred philosophical soul. Totally. And so here we are, it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> So um, there's a lot, a lot of good stuff. Uh, I think we were just talking about a few things and there are a lot of interesting topics that we're going to be covering. We're going to be talking about purpose and permission in, in life, the value of rituals, perhaps automatic writing, death and loss as teachers, ancestors, victimhood, crystals. So a lot, a lot of very deep themes here. Yeah. So maybe to, to, to begin with, Nadia, we can, we can dive in. We were talking earlier about purpose and permission and, yeah. and purpose in the context of what is my purpose in, uh, in this life, in this human incarnation. And uh, for some of us, for the rare of us, I think it's pretty easy from the get-go to hit the ground running. I was definitely not one of them. And uh, I think for, for most of us, if, I, if I'm correct, I hope, it, it is a bit, of, a bit of a challenge to figure that out. So I had actually seen a, a, a Facebook video of yours with, with that title. So, so maybe, maybe you can start with that and, and, and speak about your own journey and how you came about on this, this theme. Yeah, no, this is a, it's a big theme um, that I've definitely kind of like struggled with for the majority of my life. I, you know, there's certain people that are born and they know exactly what they want to do, right? Hit the ground running and they know exactly what they want to do from birth. You know, they, they want to be a doctor. They want to be an artist, whatever the case may be. That was not me. And Kanan, you said that wasn't you as well. Like, you know, it was more about figuring, I had to figure it out, you know, uh, and it's, it's challenging, uh, when there's so many other paradigms <laughs> that are seriously, it's a paradigm. So the paradigms that are, that are around us that, um, really are trying to guide us and, sh and shape us in certain ways, whether it's a religious paradigm the the school paradigms, the different forms of schooling and and the parental paradigms with, you know, certain certain ways of parenting. There's all these these structures that are kind of around us uh, for our whole lives. And especially while we're growing up, right? And and they they do serve a purpose. But at the same time, for the ones that don't really know what their purpose is in life, it, they can be very stifling. And I, you know, my whole journey from the time of being a little child was like like bumping up against those paradigms and being like, no, like 
I don't like that. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't feel good. You know, I, I didn't know one thing I did know at an early age for me was that, you know, it's really important for it to feel right in my body. And if it didn't feel right, then I wasn't going to do it. Like, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a Capricorn, so I'm very, very stubborn in that way. So um, I really gave my parents room for their money, but with really good reason, because I really knew from an early age that certain things weren't going to fly for me. And so, you know, I had to go through this journey of figuring out, like, truly what my purpose is, because there's all this excess noise telling us what our purpose is. You know, as a woman, my purpose is to be a mother. I'm supposed to be a, a wonderful daughter. I'm supposed to be a supportive sister and a supportive friend. You know, there's all these ways that I'm supposed to interact with the world. But the one piece that was missing was like, how do how do I truly want to interact with the world in a way that like completely makes my heart sing? And so in order to get to that place, it's like you really are just it was a process of like shedding and allowing. And this is where the idea of permission comes into play, because we have to understand that we are way more than the paradigms that have been put onto us and way more than the um the ideas that the rest of the world has about how I'm supposed to live my life. You have to, you know, you have to let go of those. And then once you let go of them, then you have to actually physically say aloud, you know, I give myself permission to feel this way, to be this way, to do this thing, to be as loud as I can possibly be, whatever the case may be. You literally have to give yourself permission because on the soul level, like the deepest level of, of who we are as uh, these beings in these physical bodies, the soul, like that's where it's like, con- there are like contracts that are like stamped on that deep level. So that's why it's important, like the spoken word and saying like, I give myself permission because it's almost as if like you're rewriting the stories that were like stamped on your soul from like a really young age. And that's where, I think that's where all of our power really truly lies is like once you like remove, you, you shed these other, these outside influences, you shed them all. And then you you stand up and you say, like, I give my perself, myself permission to go into the field of helping animals. You know, I give myself full permission to step outside of the paradigm of working nine to five and find my way. When you give yourself permission, it's like all of a sudden you get like this, like this nice push behind you. And they're like, oh, OK, I'm finding it, you know. So um, that's been my personal experience with it. And I've definitely uh, worked with a lot of patients and clients in the past that have really struggled with figuring that out and realizing that there are these constraints that are on them. And it's like, it's like, you know, awareness and bringing awareness into your life and how that is like how we truly awaken and that's how we and like become enlightened beings is like becoming aware, becoming aware of all the things that are attached to us and then making the conscious choice to free yourself from that. And then once all of that stuff is gone, then you can really easily like align your, per- your with your purpose. And then you give yourself that permission to keep going forward. And then that's when like all the blessings kind of shoot out and catapult you into a whole new level of being. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This is so beautiful. I, I love the way that you um, you said so, so many things. And I think that they also come along with the integration of your journey and a lot of the work uh, that you've been doing. Um, which we're gonna gonna explore into, but a few things that came to me is that I I totally resonate with what you said, um, with, with you know that there there's so much of this cookie cutter that when we come into this in the earthly realms that in most cultures it looks like they want to fit you into where are you gonna fit in this in this machine, and as we were speaking I was kind of jogged this memory of early parts of my life you know preteens where I, fo- I found like. With certain things, I was pretty clear of what I wanted to do. 
Uh, and, and the sad part is um, that I, I got convinced by people around me of how that was not the most uh, reasonable route. For me, that was, uh, was studying like quantum physics, physics and reality and stuff. Yeah. And so um, I, I did not realize, I can see in hindsight, how much I was infatuated and passionate about it naturally without any effort, obsessed to the point of obsession. But it was like, oh, how are you going to make money? You're going to be like a poor teacher or something like that. And uh, I took away my per- that permission. I wasn't even aware that I, you know, I actually had that that choice. Yeah. So, and I think the the, the system we live in it it does it to so many people. And uh, we have what we have today. I think that's a big part that rather than uh, tapping into our natural enthusiasm, our natural desire. Uh, we kind of get into this confusion and so many psychotherapy sessions later on and uh, challenges in life kind of stem from that initial confusion. If it could only be straightened out at that early uh, early point in time. Yep. Um, And yeah. So, um, so how, how is that reflecting? How, when you, when you're speaking with your clients, uh, how does that, but like one of the things I I heard you say is uh, feeling it in the body. Or you, you said that the body intelligence, you always have that, that kind of connection. Yeah. Yeah. For me, for me physically, it always feels like, um, like, you know, you're like a little bit concave, you know, where your shoulders might become rounded. There's like, you even might become more hunched over in the center where you're not really like using, you know, the power of like your, your solar plexus, right? Like right below your rib cage, above your belly button. It, it it comes physically in like this forward rounding of the body. And that's what you see a lot in people that have a lot of um, like a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff that they, they haven't really necessarily dealt with. Their, their shoulders will round, you know, and you can tell when a person is like really has released things because all of a sudden their posture gets better. Their, their shoulders are back, their chests are up. You know, and, and as, and if you watch them when they walk, they start to walk from the center place. Like in Chinese medicine, we call like this area, the solar plexus and below like the Dantian, which is like the, the field of immortal elixir, elixir is like the name of it, but it's like from where all of our power comes from. So it's like, we don't pay, we don't really, we're not mindful of when we walk, but that's the area that's really moving us, propelling us forward. It all comes from the center. And a lot of times you'll also notice that people are, you know, they're, they're rounded forward. And um, a lot of times uh, externally what they're projecting is a lot of blame. Blame is, it usually comes along with um, when, when you are like really not standing in your power and you're, and you have all these constraints on you, it usually comes in the form of like, they're, they're talking about how everyone else is the problem. It's like all these things are, are bothering them. All these things are the problem. And, and they have this rounded forward posture they they have back problems, you know, certain things like that. And that's always a clear indicator that they're not standing in their, they're not standing in their strength. And then for me, when I was a kid, it was, it was just like, I, like, uh, like it felt like I, like almost as if like I had like an internal straight jacket is like the best way I could describe it, where it was like me as a child, I was like so wild and so free. My parents were like, holy crap, like, <laughs> like what are we going to do with this child? Like I was always dirty. Like they were like, oh my God, out of all my sisters, I was the absolute like most challenging child for them. And so every time that my parents tried to reel me in, I could feel like this internal straitjacket, like closing me over, you know? And I, and it was uncomfortable. Like, I just remember being like, oh no, 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 no. That doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel right. 
And so I would, I would fight against it in any way that I could, you know, I was like, trying to figure out like how to outsmart my parents, how to, <laughs> like, how to do whatever I could so that I could not, so that they would not try to con- constrain me. And it just felt like a constraining for me personally. Is that in? Wow. No, no, that, that, that's really beautiful. And I think, uh, one of the things that I've been observing is, is kids now in, in this part of my life. And, uh, Although every kid is different, you can see how they are naturally tapped into that joy and expression of freedom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and th- I think that's where the, the uh, parents oftentimes or mostly try to try to limit that. Yeah. We live in a, in, a, in a culture where if you're laughing or you're too joyous, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, people tell you, oh, you know, that's, that's too much. Um, and so one thing that came to mind is very recently I, I had the privilege of spending some time. I was living in a house with, with some friends and seeing how they were raising their child was uh, a huge lesson for me in the context of conversation we're having. Yeah. And uh, they, they were giving uh, their daughter, uh, treating that, first of all, treating her as an adult, mm-hmm. um, this three or four year old, as if she was an equal in table conversations to everything she, she did. She was not with someone with a lower body, yeah. and, you know, someone who needed too much. So this freedom completely was like a friendship. And I was just seeing how that was, you know, impacting her creativity and power of autonomy and confidence of what she wanted to create in life. Yes. And I was like, wow, that's so simple. Whereas uh, the way I've seen, you know, the opposite of that is that you, uh, these kids are like victims. They don't know anything and you have to tell them everything that they, they need to do. And it kind of stifles their natural expression of life. Yeah. Do you ever see like little, I think it's like the age, like four to like seven, eight kids. If you watch them walking down the street, they do not stop moving. They just don't. Their little, their little bodies like cannot contain themselves. They're shaking and wiggling and spinning around in circles and making sounds and running here. They cannot sit still. And I think that's, that's the time uh, when I remember, when I remember when I was little like that, that I would constantly be told, don't do that. Stop that. Sit here, be still, you know, uh, and and that, that's a big part of what you're talking about, like stifling that creativity, because that is the child expressing, right? And then if you cut that and you tell them, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I don't know what to do. And you take away their ability to uh, choose, and then they become reliant on the parent more. You know, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 learned, and I think part of the spiritual journey uh, is to to rediscover the child within, which is actually never left. But it, it it's like you, like I'm realizing more and more, and you can you could speak to that is I find myself to be like a child in that way. And I, I understand that concept of what you're saying, permission. Yeah. I think I understand that now at a very, very subtle level uh, that I am innocent mm-hmm. and I came here to express myself. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of permission resonates not from like someone giving you permission, but it's, you know, like also it's your power that you, you came here. And um, it also f- feels easy now because I kind of recognize that the people all the people that told me uh, what to do didn't know what they were talking about. So it, 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 it makes it easier because if you think that they know something, then you have to second guess yourself or, you know, uh, but when you know that there is so much confusion out there, it's like, Oh, I had it right in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So so, yeah, only 30 years later, Nadja. Seriously. (laughs) Rediscovering. Yeah. Uh, Man, yeah, yeah. Hanging out with kids every time I get a chance is is it's a blessing. I find too. They they become the teachers. Yeah, you know. Absolutely. And uh, 
Yeah, I think that part of our spiritual journeys is this rediscovery of innocence. And in the wider culture, innocence is often considered maybe synonymous with with weakness and, uh, you know, stupidity. But I think it's the opposite. Innocence can be very, very powerful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've in this current paradigm, we've definitely got it backwards. But thanks to uh, thanks to a lot of us, you know, I think we're, we're going to shift this. So what, what do you tell your your clients, you know, or your people that you work with or yourself, how to get in touch with that uh, purpose and also permission? Yeah, well, it's interesting because it depends on the person and it depends on where they are in their journey. Uh, because for some people, they've done a little bit of work. Maybe they've had a little bit of therapy. And so they they have been kind of going through some of their processes already. Uh, and then sometimes you you have people that have no, they, this is a brand new topic, you know. So it depends on like where they are on their journey. And it also depends on um, how connected to their own stories that they are. And that's, a, that's another really big thing is like, you know, when we experience, that we all experienced certain tra- traumatic things in our lives that have happened to us. And uh, when those things happen, like what we do, uh, what we tell ourselves uh, in order to be okay and like operate in the world going forward uh, is like, it's a protection mechanism. And, and it's great that we have that. But what happens is that that protection of mechanism, it stays on. And so, and it, it never, never goes off. So the person is continuously like reenacting uh, like the uh, defense mechanisms that their programming and stories have uh, been like dictating for their whole lives. And so it, it really depends. It's like, a, it really depends on the person and where they are in their journey. And if, and if they have a lot of trauma, because if they do have a lot of trauma, then they, then, then it's like, there's a whole bunch of like release work that has to be done on that deep level before you can even really have this conversation, you know? So it just depends on where they are in their journey. And, you know, I think the biggest thing to start it is having awareness uh, and really being in, in touch with uh, how you interact with your world. And it, and if you have good friends around you and family that can kind of mirror back to you some of the things that you were projecting, and when those things come back, to not uh, shut down, but instead look at it with that innocence, with that that question mark of being like, yeah, why do I do that? Yeah, what is that about? You know, really investigating it and not in a judgment, a way of, of creating more judgment, which creates usually negative self-talk, you know, not in that way, more in a state of curiosity. And I, when you look at things through that lens, like that innocence, that child's like curiosity, when you look at yourself in that way and you look at the things that you've gone through and the stories that you've told yourself, therefore the programming that has dictated your life, then then that is usually the best way that you can start. That's like a good starting point. It's like, you, it's like we always have to bring awareness. Awareness is like, is the first thing is like, how, like becoming aware of how you're interacting with the world, you know, and, and how you're interacting with opposite sex, how you're interacting with children, how you're interacting with the elderly, how you're interacting with uh, a boss, you know, all of these relationships, it's like, how are you approaching this? Or is there some, is there some uh, like hesitation in being open? Hmm, there is, where is that coming from? You know, you have to kind of do your own investigative work. And, and I'm the, in like my practice, I'm asking those, those questions to my patients. You know, I'm really asking them those questions. Like, how do you relate to X, Y, and Z? How do you see yourself 
how did you see yourself in the past when you were like this? And how do you see yourself going forward? It's And, and then, you know, it's it kind of just planting those seeds and kind of getting the, the juices flowing on. Yeah. How do I interact? And then that creates that awareness. And then from there, once you once you really understand how you're interacting with the world, uh, then you can start to rewrite those stories and programs. And then from there, that's when you start to give yourself permission. And then that's what aligns you with your purpose. Wow. Wow. That that was beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely can cannot be simplified. I, I think as you were speaking, the word that came to me was the warrior's path. It really requires a lot of courage. Yeah. Um, to to investigate all of that and to even bring awareness. Yeah. Because oftentimes I feel like maybe not in every department, but in certain areas, it can it can be painful. At least that's what I've experienced. Oh, absolutely. Certain, yeah. Certain parts are definitely easier, but I feel like certain relationships and certain things you don't know, but you're kind of closed off there and trying to open that and, you know, become vulnerable there. Uh, it, it, we, we need all the support we can. And that's why where it comes that attitude of being being a warrior. At least that resonated with me. Yeah. To, yeah. To and then like, you know, for, for when I have patients that are like really coming up with like some difficult stuff, it's and then for me as a practitioner, like it's really about holding that space, you know, just holding that space for them to to like create a safe container for them to feel release, you know, what have epiphanies, whatever the case may be, just creating that container for them, that safe space and place for them to do and feel however they need to, um, for them in order to release, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I love that word release and how you were earlier talking about the posture and that how through, through that postural observation, one can, as in your case, as a healer, uh, one can notice uh, what, what is happening? Where is the, the contraction? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And, uh, w- one of the things that I had heard from a spiritual teacher, which I've kept in, in my mind, uh, maybe as a litmus test is he said, when you're figuring out what is that you need to do in life, you, you make that decision when you're the most joyful mm-hmm. naturally. And once you're in that state, you fix it. And once you come back from that state, you know, then the doubt comes in, oh, should I be doing this? Oh, this is too hard. Then you, you do not change. You commit to that state of joy. Yeah. And I, I mean, of course, there are no shortcuts and it's a very um, individualized process, as you said, because each one of us is very unique and has different experiences. But I found it to be a useful uh, tool. Yeah. Uh, because I, I find that when one is joyful, when one is happy, it could be in the presence of being in the presence of kids, for instance. Uh, the ideas that I have, uh, they they just come out of a place of joy. Yep. You know. Completely. And then I was like, okay, maybe can I can I honor them later when I'm not in that state? Yeah. And I find that maybe because you're in that joyful state, then life is being created from that place of joy and not from a place of if I do X, Y, and Z, then I will get to yep. relax and be happy. Yep. Instead, you start from relaxation. Yeah. Another thing that you had mentioned, which you just briefly touched on, uh, maybe it's good to dovetail into that, is soul contracts. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it connects with this purpose. And, and part of your work is to integrate these deeper levels of our being. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see how you are allowing uh, or helping facilitating that for your clients and yourself as well. How, how have you done that? It's been an interesting process. I guess first I'll talk about it from like a more personal place. Because like, even as like a child, I, I always had a very, very curious mind. And I, in my mind, you know, anything was always possible, right? And, and because of that, I, I've always gravitated towards like philosophical conversations about 
about like what happens after we die and like what is there what's out in space and like you as a kid I was like you know pondering these these like deeper questions and you know we have always just been really open in terms of like the way that I see what happens to us after we leave our physical bodies and stuff like that like I grew up in a Muslim household and my dad's like pretty he's very religious and so and he's always been that way since we were very very little and so having having a background with a very religious father who who really wanted me to do, wanted all of us to do things in this particular quarter, in this particular way, because if you don't, you're going to go to hell or, you know, you're going to be, you're going to meet the devil, you're going to meet Shaitan, you know, that was always, it's always a thing, right? And so, you know, you live, you get to, you like live your life in, in this way. He wanted us to live our lives with a little bit of like this fear kind of like, you know, going forward. And I knew that, again, that was when the, the, the constraints came over me. I'm like, that doesn't feel right. I don't believe that. That doesn't sit well with me. And then it wasn't until I moved to San Diego and I started doing a lot of energy work and a lot of healing work that I really started to under, I truly started to understand like spirit, our spirits. I started to understand how, you know, we come into, we come into these physical bodies. This is earth is a big school and we come into these physical bodies and we come here to learn certain, certain lessons. And we come in with certain contracts. We're talking about soul contracts that from past life, because, you know, we lived many, many lifetimes. And so we come into these physical bodies to uh, learn certain lessons with, and then attached with these lessons sometimes are certain contracts that we have had in the past with other people, with other beings. And we come into this world and we reenact these certain scenarios to, to learn our lessons and to help to sometimes, you know, really like connect in that soul contract. And then other times it's like to break it when the contract is up. And so learning this way has been like the most freeing thing for me and my soul and my body because it it allows me to really take control and pay attention to this life because this is the one that I'm in right now. And so it allows me to like look at all of the things that are around me and like the lessons, the precious lessons that I'm learning and all the beautiful people that are around me that are here to help me learn them, you know, and the vice versa and how, and how I'm here to help them on their journey and whatever the case may be. And so... Like that had, you know, once I understood that and then you talk about like soul contracts and then you understand that the soul is this thing that is just, it, it's this major thing that's in this physical body right now, but it still has like these huge, huge ties to so much beyond this physical and, and also tied to our ancestors, which is the other topic we were talking about and, and our ancestors, like the contracts that we have with them. And so, for example, like, like bringing for, so like the soul contracts in spirit are one are one piece. But if we now talk about soul contracts in like this physical life, so like quick story, like when I was four, I was even a person, and I was in my mom's belly. You're like barely yeah. formed into much of anything. You just have like a little tiny little. You're like a little electric spark in there. My yeah. parents were like having like a hell of a time together, and my mother was not really like she was really not doing well in terms of like her emotional like mind and body she wasn't she wasn't doing well and yet I was this little zygote in her belly and so you know because of that I it's like imprinted on me at an early age that I was my one of my soul contracts was that like I was going to take away my mother's suffering you know and we do this as we it's not even it's so deep you know, it's beyond the conscious mind. The conscious mind is like this tiny little layer. Then you have your sub subconscious mind underneath that. And then you have the whole unconscious mind, you know, underneath that. So it's like, it's so deep when you don't even at that stage, it's like, 
you just connect to the feeling and that feeling of my mother suffering. And then, and then so when I became me in this body, one of my contracts was to make sure that my mother didn't suffer. So my whole life, I had that in the background guiding me, you know, like making sure that like I was making sure that my mother was okay. My mother was okay emotionally, even though she's, she's a phenomenal woman and she's done so much work on herself to release a lot of the traumas that she experienced in her life. So she's doing great. But sometimes it's like you still have those contracts, you know, just because now she's doing great doesn't release you from that. It's like you still have made, you still have that contract that you made in utero that you were going to protect her and keep her safe. And so then how do you deal with releasing that? Because that contract doesn't really served you at that time when you were small and in utero and connecting with your mother. It served, it had a purpose. But now as an adult, it doesn't have the same purpose. And so it's almost like as if like I see us as being such energetic beings. And so anytime that you have these soul contracts that aren't really serving you, it's like robbing you of your energy. You're uh, adding to your life force. So it, it really is important to do what you can to release certain contracts so that it frees up that energy, frees you up energetically. And so, you know, the way that, because it kind of dovetails into the, the book, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin, which is an extremely powerful book. And, yes. and talking about like the ancestral ties that we have and like how to go about, number one, finding them and then, and then, and then finding the ties, finding the soul contracts that are connected to them and then how to release them. And then the releasing process, you know, it's, it's really about like seeing, seeing that person that you have that contract with, seeing them as being like whole and completely in their own power. Like in my case, it's like me seeing my mother as being like a fully capable, fully functioning uh, woman filled with so much love and so much to give that she doesn't need me to hold that space in that way any longer. And it's like, as soon as you really see that and you really feel that, it's like, that's when the contract dissolves. And that's when like you, you are like given back all of that excess energy that you were pouring into this contract. And it's very, very empowering and very, very freeing. Is that? Oh, absolutely. This, okay. is, this is really, really beautiful. I was just letting you kind of just pour out because I know that you have been working at it with, with so many angles or the angles of ancestors and dream work and some of the stuff we're going to talk about. But yeah, it's, it's such a rich topic and a few things came to, came to mind. And, you know, also from, from kind of my own journey, this is as I was, we were talking uh, before we started, that for me, some of these things have come as a surprise and I've had to integrate them because in the beginning, I was like, I'm going straight to, to spirit or being very philosophical, scientific. I want to know what the source of creation is. I want to know what the basis of reality is. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I, I'm, I was not so much interested in ancestors and other, other beings and other realms and stuff. Cause I didn't want to be distracted, but a lot of this came in that you're not going to reject different aspects of reality, but integrate them. Yes. So, um, so we, we have consciously or unconsciously, we have a story of the birds and the bees, you know, how it all came to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and what is my place in, if I have this skin color or if I'm in this country, what does it actually mean? And it's, it's like a bigger family you're part of. Mm -hmm. And so predominantly in the world, we are right now in a materialistic culture. Yeah. So forget about spirits and ancestors. We're talking about not even having a soul. Yeah. You know, that's the 
paradigm that we're in no. for the most part. And this book that you had shared with me, mm -hmm. that it didn't start with you. And I did end up watching a talk. I forget the name of the gentleman. If, if you, if Mark you Wolin. Mark Wolin. There. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Yeah. I, I didn't read the book, but I heard a, a kind of a talk of his on, on science and non-duality, like about half an hour. And he connected with a lot of this research of, which is kind of in the time of Darwin, you know, Darwin was considered a hero where it's all about natural selection and survival of the fittest. And ancestors don't really play a role. What your parents do doesn't really count, but what counts is what thousands of people have done before. Yeah. Only that matters, but immediate curse don't matter. So uh, I think there was a gentleman by the name of Lamarck who had proposed this idea that he thought that your immediate ancestors, uh, you know, he gave this example of if there are like these uh, long necked giraffes in the forest mm -hmm. and suddenly all the trees vanished, then in the very next couple of generations, you will see the necks shortening in size in the offspring. Yeah. But everybody dismissed that. And now we have a lot of research, you know, connecting it back to Mark's book of this epigenetics where if your ancestors were in famine, then your chances of becoming obese are higher. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually a published study, very recent, where I saw, mm -hmm. where it was from World War II people, you know, yeah. where, where they were a lot of famines. And their children's, guess who, the Dutch people are these giants. They had these immense growth sprouts yeah. because they were overcompensating for what their immediate ancestors had done. Yeah. <laughs> So I feel like even scientifically, we are, we are kind of verifying this, even in our genetic, in our DNA. Yeah. This memory of ancestors is, is there. Completely. Well, I was going to say in that book, I think, you know, every, I think every, literally everybody should read this book because everybody has trauma and everyone's family has trauma. And it's really about the traumas that we don't talk about. Those are the ones that really imprint on our messenger RNA. And those are the ones that we pick up through our ancestral line. And he talks a lot in the beginning of the book all about these experiments that were done on mice mm -hmm. and, and showing how many generations, like one trauma affected like X amount of generations of these mice. So sad, you know, when you, when you, when they do the experiment to me, it's like, oh, like heart hurts, you know? But I mean, the fact that they were able to actually show that is very, 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 very valuable to us because, you know, living in a material, uh, materialized society, we, we look for proof and that provides that proof, you know, that it, it's very real. Uh, and if you talk to, if you can, if you read the book and you follow what he says and you find like what rings true to you, like the, the statements that ring true to you that you know are tied to someone other than yourself. And you go, when you do that work, you're going to be amazed at the results. You'll be amazed. I couldn't believe the story that I was told when I, when I went through and I connected with my grandmother that I never met. She died before I was born and my great-grandmother, obviously that I never knew. And I found out the stories. It was incredible. And to be able to now see them in a different way, in a different light, and to rewrite those stories has created so much freedom for me. And I'm so grateful for it. He, the book is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Yeah, I, I really want to look into that. And actually, one of the questions 
that came to me while I was uh, listening to his talk, which was kind of kind of short. And I think he, he talked about going on a spiritual journey and being told, you know, he was expecting that that will give him, deliver him the goods, yeah. the peace that he was seeking. Um, and the teacher, one of the teachers that he, he says he was in a, this giant line. And when he met him, the first thing the teacher said was, go and make peace with your parents. Yeah. And <laughs> so uh, he said he didn't listen at that time. It took him to hear it from someone else. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I was wondering, you know, of course, I want to look at the book and, you know, it didn't start with you. Even the title is quite, quite inviting. And there are a few talks if people want to check out or we'll put them in the show notes. And of course, people can reach out to you as well. Absolutely. But yeah, I think you said something because the question that came to me was, okay, how do you make that, make that piece as these stories are un- unveiled? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, but I something that flashed in my mind as you were speaking. And that was when you were recounting your story of, you know, being in the womb and you recognized perhaps you, you had this revisitation of this experience of being in the womb and the contract that you made with your mom that uh, you were responsible for her not suffering, mm-hmm. which for, for someone who is a, a newborn, that's a pretty heavy contract to sign at that point in time. And so what, what came to me was when you mentioned that you then saw your mom not as a kind of a victim, but a fully powerful being who has all the capacity to take care of herself. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like a light bulb go on, like an answer. How do you, do you make that peace? And to, to me, was that, that, that is something the lens that I'm trying to incorporate is to not see anyone as a victim. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are situations where people need to, where one could offer support and compassion but we oftentimes have this view that, you know, we must help people because somehow they are inca- incapacitated. They don't have the capacity to help themselves. Yeah. Well, uh, they don't a lot of the times, you know, and the way that the world is structured, it's structured to not like that you yourself do not know how to take care of yourself. Like you don't know what products to buy. You don't know how to take care of yourself. You don't know what car to drive. You don't know what school to go to. You don't, you don't know anything that you have to be guided you know, that has been ingrained in our society since since we were children, you know. And so and and a lot of people are they, they still subscribe to that, you know, that thought that like they don't know, you know, everyone else knows they they're, they they don't know anything. They're not to, they can't trust themselves. They can't, you know. And so then that that's them being like, help me, help me, help me. And that's where the victim mentality kind of really comes from. And we we truly aren't like you said, we truly aren't. But right now, the way our society is structured, everyone a lot of people think that, you know, they don't have the power, you know, and that totally. and that is something that um, that I've found in my work that going back to parents, it usually stems from from society and then deeper, the deeper, deeper, deeper victimization mentalities come from uh, there's like a lack of nourishment that they've received from their parents, usually the mother in some way, no. shape or form. Some way, shape, or form. When you when you pull in that that victim, pulling that victim card, it's like as you're crying for the attention. It's like a baby in her crib, crying for the attention from their parent, and they, you know, they didn't get it right as a baby, and so they create situations in their lives where they keep crying for attention, you know, crying for their for their mom to come and and rescue them, you know. And I think you know, yeah, we we maybe have all fallen victim to that before. <laughs> Funny word. Uh, before, but we, we have, you know, and so in certain regards, whether it's from society or from parents or whatever, like, I think we all kind of have, and, and it's great to, um, 
see the potential beyond that in each person because that's really where the magic happens as like a healer is like you said it can on like seeing not seeing them in that way and being like no you completely have the power like you are you know you have complete control uh and and really getting people to understand that on a deeper level uh than just like you know this way of being like i do what i want you know here's the south park in that episode and the little girls like <laughs> she's so terrible and she's like i do what i want you know there's that which is like it's like it's an empowerment way but it's very temporary like we're talking about the deeper stuff the stuff that's like you know that really it's like you do you do what you want because you are full enough to do what you want, not because you're um, doing it in order to get attention, which well, is a big. Yeah, I mean, th- this is such a rich, rich topic, and I think it's it's the mother topic. You know, it it can resolve so many secondary secondary problems. And a couple of things ca- came to mind. Uh, one was what you were just referring to. You know that, yeah, ultimately it can be revealed to us and we can experience ourselves as this almighty, powerful being or the spirit who by their own choice is experiencing this limited experience. So, so, but yeah, going back to your point, I think that as you were giving this example of South Park, you know, as much as it opens the heart, I, I, I understand what you were saying is that it is kind of limited in time and duration and the deeper work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. A quick quote came to mind, uh, and I want to see how you feel about that. When I heard yeah. it the first time, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> it, it was from one of my teachers, and she is a phenomenally empowered being. And you get empowered in her presence. So mm-hmm. and oftentimes she tells you things that you might not be ready to listen to. So she said to me, she said, the only reason you see someone else as a victim is because you see yourself as a victim. Yeah. It's like that whole mirror. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, the first time I heard that, maybe it was a few years back, and I had a little reaction to that mm-hmm. uh, internally. And I had to investigate that that reaction. Uh, it kind of gave me a clue that if I was reacting to that, there was probably some truth in it. Yeah. And, but anyways, yeah, that, that has shifted quite a bit. But anyways, how, how do you, I think that's very useful for people to hear. In our family dynamics, in our friendships, when you say that, look at it objectively. Yeah. So how, how do you disconnecting? It's not something that I've always done. I'll tell you that, you know, I feel like a big reason, a huge reason as to like what even catapulted me to move to California from New Jersey was my family. <laughs> and just being in that family, uh, you know, container and all of the stuff, you know, and I just really needed to like remove myself from that for, for a long time. And it wasn't until I moved to California that I was able to actually tap into that more. And I've, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of, um, I'm sure you've heard of Don Miguel Ruiz. Oh yes. The four, uh, the four agreements. The four agreements. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And like, you know, he, I, he sometimes it's so funny because some people have like a reaction to that book because he has a really, really direct way of speaking. And so for some people it can be really off-putting. But I really appreciated his frankness and how he really was cutting through the BS and being like, you know, you need to not re- like stop taking things personal. Like to me, out of the four agreements, they're all extremely important. That's one. Like when I first read that book, that's the message that resonated with me the most was to not don't take things personal because it's really not about you. It's like we're when you understand that we are all 
experiencing this world through the lens of us, of, of our eyes, our emotions, our stories, traumas, whatever. It's, it's purely through our lens. Then you understand that the reactions that you see from people and the responses that you get from people are based off of them. It's not based off of you. And when you finally come to that realization and you're like, oh, like I'm not supposed to be taking any of this personal. And then it really helps. And so I, I you know, being an acupuncturist and walking the, the path of a healer, I have had to really understand that because, you know, there's certain instances with patients that, yeah, you couldn't really get hurt if you, if you let it, you know, if you were, if you were to let it like really upset you and offend you, yeah, it would hurt. But then you have to understand if you, if you just release that and you look at it through the lens of being like, this person in front of me is suffering and they're struggling and they're in pain and, you know, they haven't slept in a month, you know, whatever the case may be, when you see it through their lens, then it's all else kind of falls off. You know, the, the, um, the normal, like assault that comes along with, uh, the the stuff that is flying at you all the time, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have a place to stick when you start to look at everything from a more objective viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So that book was very helpful, the four agreements for me and in, in in really understanding that like I do not like this is this is not about me. Not about me. It's really it's really never about us. <laughs> right. It's just right. the things that are happening around us. And we and then we have our own personal experience with everything around us. But it's really not about us what what we were what is in front of us from other people yeah it's uh yeah totally that that objective viewpoint and we'll, we'll put the put the, the book there in um in the show mm-hmm. notes as well um yeah and and i i feel like the more we see that uh the situation that life is presenting situations and not so much problems um but I, I think we, we have to connect with, uh, there are so many ways to do that with our true power yeah. as spirit. And I think you and I were having this conversation earlier that it gets revealed to you at some point that only if you, if you want to know the answer, I think that's very important. All these things that we're talking about, um, if you know, people challenge them, well, how can they come in my experiences? Like if you are really curious and mm-hmm. you investigate them, uh, then it it comes into your experience, but if you're not curious, it's not handed down to you these yeah. truths. Yeah, and it's like it's it's a you know we're all, we're constantly in a state of change, and so we all have our journey with these things, you know, and and we all have certain mirrors or people that are like presenting themselves to us for us to see certain aspects within ourselves too, which is another thing. It's like if you're not if you're like if you're approached with some a situation of a, or a person that is challenging. You know, you look at it and say, well, first of all, like clearly this is their experience. But then also you can ask the question like, well, what is what does this mean to me? Like, is this what is this showing me into into myself? And you can use that difficult moment as a time to do do your own like kind of housekeeping and cleaning and figuring out, well, yeah, why did that bother me? Or what what does that trigger? You know, do your investigative work that way. So I do I do a lot of that, too, these days. Where if I am confronted with something that's really uncomfortable, that's just does not feeling right, I do try and investigate it and figure it out from like on a deeper level, deeper soul level for myself, as well as like looking at things objectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. So that actually brings a question in my mind. Because I've been feeling that as we do this kind of investigation, or when I do it, I'm discovering more and more subtle layers of this work that are more on the feeling level. And oftentimes... Uh, more and more, I see 
that I don't have like a narrative or articulation of why that is happening. Uh, and I wanted to kind of check in with you um, with that. What, what do you think about that is that sometimes I feel like I have to trust more what I'm feeling in the immediacy of the situation to kind of make it simple. The kind of process I have now that I'm trusting more is less of what the reason is, like not even going there at times. If, if it comes to me, it's fine. But sometimes I feel like it's, I, I don't, I have nowhere to even begin. So I can tell you very quickly, like there was this situation that happened to me yesterday where I was speaking to someone and uh, on the phone, I didn't know this person. And I had this just discomfort. I felt like maybe just something in the vibration. I felt like I was kind of being constrained. Yeah. You know? And so I just uh, sat down for like five minutes after this 10 minute phone call, just kind of felt into my body. And then I was like, okay, you know, uh, I'm not going to enter into an agreement with this person just because of feeling this way, because it can, it, I don't know what it is, but I don't feel that this will be good. So I just trusted that. And I just told them, you know, I don't think it's going to work out. So what are your thoughts on that? And can, can, can that be trusted at times? To me, it was simplicity. Oh yeah. That's a, that's the key is like being like, that's like kind of like that perfect because it's like you were mm. completely in alignment you were completely aware and you were in tune with how you were feeling in that moment. And then you made your decision and then it's like, okay, done you know, onto the next and just kind of like not and not really um, putting much thought into it after, you know, I think that's important too, is like not letting things stick, yes. you yes. know, and like just kind of like letting it go and just being like, okay, that's it. Good. We'll just do that. Good. My, you know, yeah. because I do, I like uh, being an acupuncturist, that's one of the, one of the beautiful benefits and side effects of being in this field is it is a complete healing, feeling modality, you know, um, for me, you know, we, two of the diagnostic tools that we use in acupuncture are looking at the tongue, the tongue tells a lot about the physical state inside a person's body and then also feeling the pulse. For me, it's always been feeling has been more, more of a, um, like a more definitive tool than seeing. And so, you know, I've, I've definitely like fine tuned, you know, my sensibilities with, with how I like, I work with my patients. It's all off of feeling like I'm, I'm a very like intuitive kind of practitioner where I don't really use books and look at, you know, I, I know my knowledge and then I like embodied it and I, and I like in, intuit the treatment uh, as opposed to knowledge based the treatment too much. And so that has worked for me. Uh, it's kind of spilled over to my, into my life because I'm able to really use how I feel the same way that you tapped into your feeling yesterday and how you felt in that moment. And that, and that's the truth to me. It's like when the, the feeling is Feeling is, is the all-knowing in, in, in this physical body for me, you know, it's really about how it, how it feels. Like, how does that feel to me? And has resonate like, in me? Like, what does that feel like? And then that's, that's, that's where the decision, where, where decisions really, you know, should be made as much as you can. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. that that's, thank you for that word of confidence. Yeah, I, I feel like, like oftentimes more and more in, the, in this deeper spiritual work, the, the feelings are kind of unlocked. And sometimes, uh, maybe we'll be talking about this more. For me, it's the dream realm where I've kind of give, given signals of what these feelings or sensations in the body are kind yeah. of correlated to. And oftentimes it's not very clear. Like it's yep. not like you could write down as a prescription, this was related to this. But it's overwhelming evidence that something in the past is carrying this memory in the body. And yep. I think well, as soon as, as, as you were hinting at that, I think if you can get in touch with that feeling, that solves the whole problem rather than trying to go the mental route 
and 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 navigate through you know this happened and then that happened and why did it happen that way that I, I'm sure that works but that seems harder but if you can get yeah directly- yeah completely harder and I think then you also have to deal with like the ego and then sorting through that too. So and that adds another layer to things to complicate things. And there's all different parts of our of us. We're like a sum of all the parts. So sometimes you have like certain aspects of yourself that are going to be more present. Like, you know, the like little girl scared Naja might jump forward and, and be present in a situation where it's generating fear for me. And so if I just use my mind to go through that, then I would respond based off of scared little Naja that you know what I mean? That reacting in that way, which might totally be out of alignment with the way that I need to react as an adult in this body, in this lifetime, and like what I'm doing and creating now, you know? So yeah, I think it's really important to really, the feelings to me, it's have always been where it's at, you know, like, and so, yeah. Yeah, no, fabulous. I think over time, one can develop the sense of being more in tune with the feelings, especially for me being more cerebral. It's, it's, it's taken a, First, it's, it's, it was to even understand that that was something valuable. And then as that was discovered that it's easier, you know, it's like, it's, I, I find it fascinating and interesting to actually connect with them more and mm-hmm. feel it out in the body without going into narratives. So m- maybe we can start where we left off kind of the last time. And one of the themes that you have been sharing with us and a lot of your work is around is ritual. Uh-huh. So maybe you can start with like the very basic, what is ritual to you? What value do you derive from it? Um, maybe we can just start there. Yeah, totally. It's ritual and I haven't had the closest relationship my whole life. I'll just say that, like, just put it out there. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like it has only been in the last few years that it has really developed into something that um, I completely, completely have like given my heart to. And I um, look towards it in a lot of ways in my everyday life to um, just to help me along my day, along my week, along my months, the lunar calendar, whatever the case may be. And um, it's been it's been a process, that's for sure, because it wasn't until my I was married and I was with someone that was very, very narcissistic and very controlling. And in that time, I had like let a lot of the important parts of myself fall to the side. and. It wasn't until the moment that he, he, I asked him to leave. The moment that he left, I went into a state of ritual. It was like automatic where it was mm. like I had, it was like I, I had to bring ritual back in order to bring me back to myself. And so for me, that looked like in the beginning of getting in touch with ritual was uh, cleansing, like literally a cleansing, like getting in the bath. And cleansing my body with just intention, like really deep, strong intention to clear my field, my physical field of all that was left from that relationship. And I literally just took the time and I like showered, like I I looked at the bath as if it was like a bath filled with unconditional love. And I got into it with the intention of cleansing my physical body with this unconditional love. And that was the first uh, time that I had reconnected myself with ritual and and literally that was to bring me back to myself because you know and and sometimes in relationships that happens and you know it was a it was years in the making of of this disregarding of myself in this relationship so it was like the first moment that I was like okay now it's time for me to bring that love back to myself and nourish myself so it's it's really important the intention is really important in ritual so 
anything can be a ritual. Anything that you do can be a ritual. You know, you can drive your car and it can be a ritual, right? It's like you get, you, you, before you get in your car, you intend that wherever you're going, you're going to get there safely and you're going to catch all the green lights and you're going to find easy parking, right? <laughs> so you set that intention before and then you get to your car and you see, like, you literally start to visualize and see, like, your guides and, and angels, like, around you, protecting your car as you get in. And then when you get into the car, you can say a couple lines to yourself about you being safe and being grateful to the angels for helping you on your physical journey, going to where you need to go. And then when you, you know, you, you and you see this all, right, you can make anything a ritual from driving your car to making your morning tea or coffee. It can all be a ritual. And the most important part of ritual is the intention. It's like creating that intention and then like seeing it, seeing whatever it is that you want. Like you create the intention. It's not just like saying just like five lines, but also like really seeing it and feeling it in your body. And then boom, you've created a ritual right there. You know, um, that, that's just a really easy way to do it in our daily lives because, you know, we do use a lot of ritual in our world, right? I think we talked about this before, Kanan, um, mm -hmm. in terms of like Christmas and like holidays and weddings and funerals, right? Those are rituals that we have, we all subscribe to in our society. And depending on your culture, there's different rituals and they're usually done in groups. It's just very rare that we do it uh, just for ourselves. And, and that, and that pulls back into like that self-love, you know, that self-love, self-worth when you make these things ritual and you use the intention, the power of the mind visualization with whatever it is that you do, then you're able to really, really like fill your cup back up. You know, and that's the beauty of creating ritual in a, in a daily basis. So that was like the, like, that's like one, one ritual that I did, right? Like a while ago when I was getting over that relationship. And then like on a daily basis, it just kind of looks like I do a lot when, when I make my morning coffee, because I, mm -hmm. I love the, I love the whole aspect of it, the smell you know, the grinding of the beans, the getting the water, you know, like all of it. Like I, I go through this whole ritual and I take cardamom pods and I crush car fresh cardamom pods. And I, you know, like in my, with my mortar and pestle, like I go through this whole thing. It's a very elaborate uh, ritual that I do in the morning for my coffee. And then I sit down and I'm just so grateful. And I take that sip and it like, it like just grounds me, you know, and that, that's energetic because coffee literally takes 20 minutes in order for the effects to kick in. But yes. it's like creating the ritual around it is what, what, what will center me and ground me. Like that's just on like a daily basis, but like my coffee ritual that I do, you know, and then when we have the new moons and the full moons, I do my other rituals, like I wish I shared with you before too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. I, I mean, there's so many powerful things that you've shared in particular. I like how you talked about in, imagination and intention in mm -hmm. particular and also the kind of reconnecting with yourself yeah and uh, th this is good that i'm talking to you because um rituals have also come come more into to my life in a conscious way as you we were earlier talking and you just highlighted that every there there are just so many rituals it just seems like everything in our life is a ritual but at least the way i've been seeing it is for the most part in society and culture it's been forgotten why we have culturally inherited, you know, taking marriage vows to, uh, you know, in certain cultures and traditions when an animal is used for food, there is a proper ritual to honor the animal and mm -hmm. to also honor that this is life that you're consuming to sustain your own life. Mm -hmm. And now what is happening with this particular example is, you know, we don't need to talk about it, but if you see any of the documentaries I've 
been exposed to some of these documentaries about how animals are treated. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible that the level of violence and mm-hmm. um, all the stuff that goes into it. And then we just consume it in a completely disconnected way. Yeah. From everything, not just animals, but but plants. We don't know where the food comes from. We don't know who are the people who prepare this food and how they are treated or what kind of economic conditions they are in. And so there is this complete disconnect. You know, you, you have water just coming in the taps without any idea of where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you said reconnecting, that was like a, like a light bulb for me that mm-hmm. when I'm doing these rituals, I, re- I, was, I was trying to label and this didn't occur to me before I spoke to you. You know, I had some good reasons of why I was doing it. But yeah, one reason is to reconnect with what is the actual state of affairs. Yeah. Because I feel like at the end of the day, if you're not reconnected, then uh, it's not good news ultimately. Yeah. In the long run. It's like jumping yeah. off a plane without a parachute. It's good while you're coming down till you hit the ground. <laughs> so I think in this pandemic, we yeah. are kind of hitting the ground, realizing that mm-hmm. we, we perhaps have to bring that intentionality and awareness to how and why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. And again, and that, that, that touches on just being present, you know, and like really understanding, like if you're in that moment with whatever it is that you're doing, like you're saying the food and you take that time to think about like where this came from that's right in front of you you know it's like bringing that present awareness to it yes no that's fascinating maybe ultimately when we are fully present we don't need to orchestrate rituals because it's already the purpose of ritual has already been fulfilled yeah but till that time these Mm -hmm. kind of making it very aesthetic Mm -hmm. and very sensual is um i think is it, it it brings in that presence it helps yeah, yeah, completely. It helps. It reminds me of when you, when you talk about food, I um, spent just a tiny bit of time at Deer Park Monastery here in um, Escondido, the Thich, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, sanctuary and monastery. Yes. And have you been there before? I have once, uh, maybe twice. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a pretty big place, actually. Yeah, like we, when I went, we, I ate there. Did, were you able to eat when you were there? I might have. I don't remember. It was a while ago. Yeah, it was very, 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 very special because you're not allowed to talk in the hall. Like there's no talking. So as you eat, you just have to eat. And, you know, you're and you're supposed to do it slow and with intention and paying attention. And, you know, that's really, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, I guess that's really what his he's really about is being present. Right. It's like getting you back to the present moment when you're there and they, they ring the bell and everyone has to stop. And you just absorb the present moment. It's like so beautiful. But I remember that about the food and being in the hall and eating with other people, like a room full of people and everyone just contently enjoying their meal, just them and their meal, you know, and it was very special to see. No, that's fascinating. And I, I was kind of kind of giggling a little bit because what you just said reminded me about five years ago, I was doing some Zen retreats. Uh-huh. I, had a, I had a Zen face for a while. And I, I forget what the name of the kind of the ritual was. I didn't know it was a ritual at the time, but they had these very elaborate rules of how the meal was done. And one aspect of that was folding your napkin in a very particular fashion oh. and the chops, putting, placing the chopstick. For the life of me, I hated that ritual because I could never get it right. You know, I could get yeah. it approximately correct, but that wasn't enough. So I had to start again and uh, someone had, had to always help me during the retreat. I had to ask yeah. for help. Mm-hmm. And I had to 
I felt embarrassed. So I had to pay attention while other people were folding their napkins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that mindfulness aspect, it, it really felt painful <laughs> at that time. So I was just reminiscing. And now I'm yeah. seeing is how much of that I actually see the importance of that. Yeah. That it's the, the mindfulness is just one tiny aspect of it. But it I think it trains us to to appreciate certain aspects of even organization and beauty and, and doing so, certain things that are good for us. But at a certain point, we don't realize that they are actually good. Yeah. Till you verify that for yourself, you you somehow have to discipline yourself to kind of go through that learning process. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, I, I think mind, mindfulness can be, can be tricky when you start out. Very, 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 very. <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things that I was touching base, touching with you upon earlier was in terms of ritual, because I know you have a kind of a Chinese background, a Chinese medicine background, and you're a culturist as well and a healer. And that is the, the five elements. Mm-hmm. So in the Eastern traditions, pretty much, and also here, I think in the Native American traditions, all indigenous perhaps traditions have the five elements, you know, which, which is earth, water, uh, fire, air, and then ether. And so I've been doing certain, certain meditations around that, both from kind of the yogic standpoint and the Sufi traditions. And I felt that it was very much, as early as I was sharing with you, very much like the ritual conversation were happening. But I was not looking at it from that perspective. So yeah, I would love to hear from your traditional training and also how you how you see this. Yeah, because it's it's a very it's like something that that I always hold like really near and dear to my heart. I had no idea when I was going to school to become an acupuncturist that I would learn about the five elements and that this was like a big part of Chinese medicine. I honestly had no idea. It was like this beautiful gift that I was given <laughs> on top of learning all the other parts of becoming an acupuncturist. Because of the fact that the five elements are a little bit different in Chinese medicine than they are in Ayurveda. Right. Because it's wood, fire, earth, metal, water. That's, those are the five. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a little slightly different, but it's, it's based off of the same thought that like the interplay of each of them and how each one supports e- each other. And learning that was always like, I was like, oh my gosh. And then looking at the fact that those five elements that we were learning about actually exist within our physical bodies. So there's the water element, there's a fire element, wood, earth, metal, all of that exists inside of our physical body. And the interplay with all of them and how as soon as one becomes out of balance, then that'll throw the whole system off. And I mean, the system of Chinese medicine is so deeply intricate. It's so intricate. So you know, it's like we are the microcosm of the macrocosm and we contain all the same elements that are in the exterior are also in the interior. And the way that we connect the two is through the senses. So for for like in, interior inside the body, there's like the earth element and you use the sense of taste is is considered the earth element and like certain characteristics like the voice. Uh, will be more more sing songy. We talk about the voice being sing songy in Chinese medicine. That's going to be considered earth and mm. earth an earth sounding voice. And you know, like the the fluid. What's the fluid of the earth element? Because the earth element is really responsible for fluid metabolism. It's mm-hmm. almost like it's just all the fluids of the body will be considered the earth element uh, because the digestion is like the center that is responsible for 
moving fluid. It's written that its main job is to separate what we call the clear from the turbid. And mm-hmm. that's like the main process of the earth element inside the body. And it's so crazy because, you know, it was like mind blowing when you start to think about it and like, well, the earth and like, what does the earth do? What does our earth do? And you're like, oh my gosh, like our earth, like transmutes all energy. Like it's crazy. Even to the point where, you know, we create all of this uh, man-made materials like plastic, which is like terrible for the environment. And yet the earth is figuring out how to transmute the plastic and turn it into something useful. It's like the most mind blowing thing where you're like, Okay, so like the, the power of the planet is is like you start to think about it and it's completely mind blowing. And then you start thinking about the earth element inside of you and what that's what what is that processing for you and how does that connect to the water element? How does that connect to the wood element? And it just shows like the interplay of it all. And and one thing that always struck me <laughs> a lot when I was in school was how we look at the elements that one feeds directly into the other, right? So wood goes directly into fire, goes directly into earth, goes directly into metal, goes directly into water, and then back to wood, right? It's a circle. This is a circle that they all follow. And I never quite understood it in the way that it was taught because in my mind, in my brain, the earth element should be in the center. And I couldn't quite understand why we were being taught that it was that they were all around in a circle because when I kept trying to go around the circle and saying, well, I understand how this one feeds into this and how this one feeds into this, but I don't understand how this one feeds into this. Like, what's the connection here? And I started really going through it. And I, I remember like even asking my professors and they were like, well, that's just how it is. Like the, the elements just feed in the circle. But I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't quite feel right. Mm-hmm. And then it was interesting because I recently took a beautiful course all about crystals and gemstones, which I think I mentioned before. But our teacher, she she uh, totally believes and looks to a different model of how the five elements are represented with the earth in the, in the center and then the four mm-hmm. elements around the corners and how each element feeds, it goes, passes through earth before it's transformation. And that is like, and that's a very Taoist. It's a very old, old, old way of looking at the five elements that like the earth is in the center and that all the other elements pass through and transmute through the earth. And, you know, that, when I saw that, I was like, that's exactly what I was trying to say all this time. Like in my mind, I was like, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it's not sitting right with me. Like, I don't know why they're trying to put them in this, in this direct flow. Like, it seems like there's something missing. And then once I realized, oh, like, oh, the earth is supposed to be in the center. Then it, then to me, it like, it brought it to a whole nother level. Cause then I, then, then it, it makes sense. Everything made more sense to me when I started looking at it that way. And I realized like the power of the elements within ourselves and how they can be used as tools too. Uh, which is a whole other topic, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, it's very interesting. The the importance of them, it can't be mistaken. You cannot mistake the importance of right. the five elements. And the mirroring in our world within ourselves is when you tap into that, it's like, it ch- it changes how you see everything. You know, it changes how you see everything. Like you said. Yeah. And uh, no, this, this, was, this was fascinating. Maybe we can uh, shift gears and go to something that you are an expert off. And I heard a little bit from you, which is crystals and how you use crystals yeah, in the healing process. And so someone who, who's like me, who doesn't know too much, I mean, I'm fascinated with certain stones. And these days, in our culture, we, we have started to see shops and, and, and places where you can actually see these stones and, and buy them. And I know that they definitely have an effect. Yeah. Nothing else, just the aesthetics can be shocking and different people can be attracted to different stones so yeah take it away yeah 
This was, yeah, no, this was the perfect segue because we're talking about the earth. Yes. And, you know, talking about how the, like the sacredness of the earth and like understanding that the earth is alive and tapping into the fact that we have a vibration and the earth has a vibration, right? The human resonance is what it's been called. 7.83 hertz, I think, or megahertz. I forget. I forget which, if, it's, if there's an M before the hertz or not, <laughs> but we each have a vibration, right? And it's almost as if the crystals are the bridge that connects us back to the earth and connects us into the celestial cosmological realms, right? So it's, it's like the crystals and stones are these beautiful gifts from the earth that we use to connect back to the earth and up into the heavens. Just a side note. So there's like the character for like uh, man in, in um, if you look up the character for man in like Mandarin, and it kind of looks like this where it's like, there's this upright piece and then underneath. And it's almost as if man is like the connector between the realms of heaven and earth. And yes. then like the radical for stone is something very, very similar showing that it's a connector between heaven and earth, you know? Wow. And so there's this beautiful, deep, deep, deep connection between the two that if you are into crystals and gemstones, you kind of get a glimpse of that, you know, based off of there's like, you go to the gem store and there's these little cards and the cards tell you, you know, what each crystal is pretty much for. And a lot of times they'll say, this is great for, for psychic clairvoyance. This is great for grounding energy. This is great for protection. This is great for this. This is great for that kind of thing. So there's like these little notes that come with each stone that tells you a little bit about them. And so that is beautiful in itself that, you know, we, people have tapped into stones on a level that they receive information from them. And then therefore it becomes like, like attached to the stone's identity for us in this physical reality. And so there's a lot of that that's happening it, with, within the stone and crystal world. And the only thing is, is that sometimes those beliefs attached to the stones, they come through a filter, right? So like we're each giant filters receiving information from, so if like you sat and you meditated with a big piece of amethyst and I sat at the same time and meditated with a big piece of amethyst, we would have two different, some, some similarities, but our experiences would be our own. They'd be unique right. because we're the one that's filtering that information. So, you know, my best advice is to not just say that this book says that the stone does that. So that's what the stone does, because it all depends on the person and the person's connection with the crystal, with the stone. And so um, I actually had, had this like really old book and I was reading because, you know, I, I've always loved crystals and stones, but I just didn't really know how to incorporate that in my life. I didn't really know how to do it and how to, to treat my patients with them. Like a lot of times I'm like, oh, this stone would be this. I'm going to use this one on my patient. I'm going to use that one. Why? I could never tell you. It was just purely a feeling that I had gotten that I was like, I need to put this on this person's body. Like that's, that's as far as information that I, that I received. And so right. now I'm understanding that there's a way that we can connect to crystals and we can actually like imprint our, what we really need. We can put our intention into the crystal and the crystal's, they are like these beaming gifts of light. Like they are, they are these beaming gifts of light from the mother earth, from Gaia. She's gifted us these beautiful, beautiful pieces that have so much wisdom within them. They have taken a very long time to grow. And because of that, they've been around for thousands and in some cases, millions of years to actually grow. So the, the knowledge that is within a stone is 
you can't even touch it. Like it's so deep and it's so powerful. And so when you pick up one, like here, I'll grab this pretty one. This is like a little cluster. Oh, nice. It's quartz. Yeah, yeah, this is just quartz. It's like a little quartz cluster. You know, I go to the gem shop and I go and I get my, this is my stone, right? And I'm like, this is a stone that I felt when I went to the store. I'm like, oh yeah, that's my stone. So what you want to do is not just take it home and just put it on the shelf and be like, oh, you're so pretty. You could do that. I mean, it could, you could, and, and it would probably be happy there. But what you really want to do is you want to connect to the stone. You know, you want to hold it and hold it in your hands. And one thing that my stone teacher says that is very powerful to do, and she's gotten me and our whole class into doing is saying the Ho'oponopono prayer to your stones. So you, so, and that helps to kind of clear whatever, whatever there might be like how the stone was mined, where it was pulled from, if it, if, there, if it suffered in any way in, in its extraction process. So you say the words like, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Right. So you say yes. those words to this, to the stone in your hand at least three times or until as many times. And so you feel as though you feel something happen. And then you want to hold the stone and with your mind, you want to say like for this stone, I intend for this stone to help with me with whatever. So you're sending the vibration into the stone and into the crystal. And it's like you're imprinting on it. Then the crystal becomes, it becomes one with you and it's synced up with your vibration. And so then when you, you obviously it's going to be sitting because you're not going to have it on you all the time, but then, you know, in order to really work with crystals and allow them to kind of imbue you with their vibration, you can just close your eyes you know, the stone's already been, you imprinted on it from the beginning and then you close your eyes and then you connect your mind to the stone and you allow that to, you allow your mind to speak to the crystal, to the stone and, and open up like a channel of communication. I think we were talking about this a little bit before and you create a channel of communication with the stone and just be in a place of receiving after that, you know, instead of like laser focusing down, you cannot make the connection with your mind and then you just sit. And you keep yourself open and then you allow whatever messages that the stone wants to send you, you you're open to that communication. And so that's a, that's a really easy, quick way to connect with our beautiful friends from the stone and crystal worlds. And to remember to not just go off of what this book says or what this card says. It's really about like your personal relationship with them and building that. And they'll speak to you and they'll, they will, they will talk to you. You will feel pulled to them. You, you know, it's, it's wild when you start to really connect with them. Yeah. And you, you receive beautiful messages. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Thank you for giving uh, a tutorial. Almost you walked us through a meditative process on how to connect with, uh, with these stones. And something yeah. that came to kind of my mind was I myself have a, have a kind of a scientific background. And in the past I've been, very skeptical. I would say being a little bit skeptical is is useful, but too much is when you're actually just trying to find reasons to reject certain things. Yeah. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is I wanted to touch even earlier upon when we were speaking about the five elements, that these kind of mechanisms around the five elements, even though they're different, are pretty much present in every indigenous culture mm-hmm. or tradition, civilization, right? Yeah. And for the most part in the Western culture, which pretty much might be pervading through the entire planet at this point, the idea has been to consider these ancient cultures primitive, which is fine, but actually inferior in some way. And mm. just outright uh, kind of reject that. 
yeah. whatever, you know, it's like, oh, Ayurveda is, uh, you know, now we're seeing a massive resurgence of traditional healing traditions at this mm-hmm. point. But I, I thought maybe to, to quickly kind of, you know, to kind of talk a little bit about this is uh, what I've seen in, in myself growing is to see how these traditions were actually projected and when the particular Western models, of, at least very obviously in the health, yeah. have not panned out the way you can even see every academic institution, like here we're in California, San Diego. So UCSD yeah. has now a whole area of integrative medicine department, and they're interfacing with acupuncturists and all kinds of variety of healers alongside with Western allopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you actually actually had that, because I'm sure in your profession, you, you have seen waves of this uh, going through. You mean like just addressing the skepticism that that part yeah, of just it? Yeah, addressing skepticism in general yeah. about, about things that might not be, you know, so much seen in the West. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I didn't, you know, being becoming a, an acupuncturist, I was just like, yay, I'm going to help people and it's going to be great. And everyone's going to like, my doors are going to open and, you know, all these people are going to come. And and then then you get out there and you're like, oh my gosh, like I literally am defending acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Like I go, I go outside with like my, my shield and my sword and I'm like blocking, you know, cause it's like, people are coming at you being like, oh, I didn't, I, I heard that that doesn't work or da, 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 da. And you're constantly, you know, trying to explain and justify and talk to people about acupuncture and chi and how, you know, chi is really the, the electric current that runs through the body and trying to get people to understand it in like a deeper way. But science, I think science is very helpful but at the same time, it, it puts this extremely narrow lens on these particular things, like all of the ancient healing modalities on the way that we can use herbal prescriptions to heal the body. Science really wants to pull them apart. They want to extract, find out what the active component is in this particular herb, and then we'll reproduce that massively to help people, not realizing that it's the synergistic effect of everything within the herb that allows it for it to be safely consumed by humans, you know? So it's like this, this thing that science tries to do all the time where they try to get down really, really, really small, really finite and try and pull that one piece out. And when you do that in terms of healing and healing the body, you miss out. Western medicine misses the mark when it comes to healing everything that is chronic autoimmune, they miss the mark completely because their model doesn't allow for them to actually look at things from a larger perspective. And that's the beauty of Ayurveda. That's the beauty of Chinese medicine is that we were trained to look at the everything from, from the largest perspective, you know, and we look at it from there first. And then based off of our principles in Chinese medicine, is it in the, in, in the interior or is it in the exterior? Is it acute? Is it chronic? Is it yin? Is it affecting yin? Is it affecting yang? You ask all these questions and that brings you deeper, 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 deeper so that you get to like this, this exact point where this person is having this exact problem, which is completely different than if someone else has been diagnosed with the same condition by, West, by Western physician, their, their underlying cause could be something completely different. You know, and that's the reason why Chinese medicine and Ayurveda can't really hold hold a candle to uh, the way that we approach and heal chronic illness in the body, you know, and that and that and that is usually what I wind up going back to when I deal with people that are really skeptic, like big skeptics, because I'm like, okay, so so then tell me what how you're going about treating your problems. 
oh, okay, so you have insomnia, so you're taking Ambien. Okay, and you're taking the Ambien, you have insomnia because a doctor put you on prednisone and you don't the prednisone. Because, it's like you follow this trail back, you know, because that's what Western medicine knows how to do. They know how to quickly slap the Band-Aid on, slap the Band-Aid on, slap the Band-Aid on without ever really getting to the root of the condition. And so usually when, they, when someone does have things like something to say on in the, in the along the ways of like you know not really believing in these ancient modalities and like well you know Chinese medicine was around for for four thousand years for four thousand years Chinese medicine has been around you know and it's it's only been very recent that science has gotten in on the healing game when you look at it in terms of that so science is the one that's actually the baby in the situation you know but yet somehow we give it all this power. And it's completely lopsided. Um, it so is, I usually yes. kind of go about it in that way. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. And, you know, I, I have kind of this inkling that you have, um, you have faced that. Because, yes, I mean, mm-hmm. it, you, you are indeed the warrior. Because I, I be learning about this, I'm realizing how much it was difficult for the pioneer. And maybe you're in the second, third generation of yeah, completely. people. And, you know, I, I can see as I was sharing that this is now in academia. And there's, there are doctors of osteopathy, which are same as MDs, same kind of coursework. Yeah. And uh, all these branches of traditional Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine are, they, they kind of started to see that for, at least for chronic illnesses, mm-hmm. this is the only thing that provides a glimmer of hope. And yeah. right now, I've heard this from very, you know, from, from doctors and you can just go to PubMed, uh, which is a yep. you know, journal website that hosts a database of medical journals. And you can see that everybody knows that we have an epidemic of chronic illnesses. That has never been seen before. You mentioned the word autoimmune. And that's something that I had to deal with because I had chronic issues and I was completely disillusioned by the Western medical system. It's like, well, they actually have all these labels, but they don't really know what's going on. Yeah. And uh, you kind of hinted at a few themes, which was, you know, one of them being, again, about Western science or contemporary Westernized science sees everything as disconnected. You are kind of like this box completely isolated and there's no conversation or idea of harmony with your environment, harmony with your, the kind of thoughts you're having, the relationships you're having. But as I think you mentioned the word perspective that Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, that just zooms out to the cosmic level mm-hmm. and brings the whole cosmos into the play that you are not disconnected. You are indeed a cosmic, cosmic being Yeah, that reconnection has tremendous value. So, I mean, even at the surface, it makes it makes tremendous sense. Yeah. And, and on that, I'd like just, just to keep it going one level deeper is that when patients, and this, is, this has come to like what I've noticed in like years of practice, but when you have someone that has a chronic illness, cancer, autoimmune, and they are approaching their treatment from a very physical place, they don't, they don't get better. It doesn't matter how much acupuncture I would do. It doesn't matter about what herbal prescriptions I would put them on. They will not get better because it goes, their, their condition is so deep that it's, it's like imprinted on their soul. And then that's when you would use certain modalities that are really attached to the soul, like crystals and crystal work and stuff like that. No, that, that, that is, that is beautiful. I, I think there's, there's a big, big shift that's happening in, in so many people, but I felt maybe it's, it's good to kind of highlight what the deeper systemic problems are. Totally. Totally. I mean, I, I've seen this a lot with my cancer patients and, um, the, what they expect for when you are diagnosed with cancer, what the doctor would prescribe as a course of treatment for their patients. 
And if you don't know any better and you just do exactly what they say, you will be very sick. You will be extremely sick in this process of healing. And I had one of my friends that or she was a patient, became a really good friend of mine. She, her father was an anesthesiologist. So he spoke the language of, of the other, of the doctors, you know? And so when, when they went in for her treatment, they, they told her what to do. Like, okay, now what would you do if this was your, your mother, you know? And, and it's a great question to ask your, if you're put in a position like that in a West, with a Western physician and they're throwing the book at you because that's what their training is and because it's a money-making machine or whatever the case may be, you know, for you to actually say like, well, what would you do if this was your loved one? What would you prescribe for them? Would you make them do all of this? You know, what, what would you be looking at? Quality of life or quantity? Like, you know, what, it's good to put it in that, in that perspective to them because we do, we give away our power to physicians a lot when we think that they are the ones that hold all the power and they hold all the knowledge, but they're also just following treatment protocols. So it's really good to get them out of that box every now and again when you can. Yeah, no, totally. I think this, this kind of connects with this idea when you were saying this concept that's in, in Ayurveda, I've seen in, in traditional Chinese medicine, that even though a patient might be exhibiting the same kind of symptoms yeah. to people, their treatment can be radically different. Mm-hmm. And this is not a concept well, most, some doctors might start recognizing it now, but most people is like, oh, you have blood pressure, it's a mm-hmm. high blood pressure or whatever, the one pill, you know, cholesterol yeah. takes statins. Yeah. And uh, that's the only one silver bullet we have that treats everybody with that illness. Yeah. So there's no individualized uh, treatment. So in any case, yeah. So thank you for that. Maybe you like shifting kind of gears. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I know that you had recently had a podcast on which is a topic I'm really fascinated with, mm-hmm. is the area of dreams. Yeah. So what has been your relationship with dreams or how it has evolved? How do you see it today? Uh, it's so interesting because, you know, when I was a child, I, my dreams were really wild, really wild. And I remember when I was, I think, like five or six years old, I, I, I came down with a, a really bad fever. And I was home and I remember being in like kindergarten or something, maybe first grade. And I was home and I was just sleeping on the couch and I was just sleeping all day. And I remember I kept falling into this dream and it kept happening. And the dream was that I was in the trenches in like the Korean War or like First World War or something. And I was like in the trenches and there were bombs going off and I I was a man and I could taste dirt in my teeth. Wow. And I, and one of the, one of my, the guys that was with me, he got shot and I was trying to care for him. And it was like, as a, as a five-year-old child, I, it was like every single time I woke myself up out of it. Cause it was so scary being five and having that dream. And I go back to sleep and I would go back into it again. And it, it was like that for like two days. And I remember telling my mom, you know, I, I'm like, what is, what's going on? Why, you know, why am I dreaming this? And she, she was a little worried, you know, she took me in to see a child psychologist because, you know, I think she really thought that I was actually, the dream was way more than a dream, but it was one of my past lives that I was reliving. And for whatever reason, it's like, wherever my, wherever my brain was, when I had that fever, it just kept connecting me back to that place, connecting me back, connecting me back. So that was like my first, like the early experiences with dreams for me and having the ability to just have a lot of like lucid lucidity in my dreams and like, you know, flying and checking in and out of dreams when I want, zooming in, like going in really close, backing out, changing scenes, going here, going there, 
which was always really uh, cool. And then once I became in my mid to late twenties, all of a sudden it all stopped, you know, like I lost all my ability to connect in the dream space. And, and it started for me, oddly enough, when I started reading a book on how to get deeper into dreams, yes. it was as if like I had already had that. And then I started reading this book about developing this sense in myself and it literally turned it off. It turned it off for years for me. And it, it took me about like five years, I would say, in order for me to get back into the into the relationship with the dream world that I that I had before and nowadays it's it's uh dreams have become so 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 powerful especially because I've been working more and more with crystals and and when I started working like before I forgot to mention this about crystals and stuff before but I used to make jewelry with uh stones and and I would make uh like really really healing pieces where I would look at like the the chakra system where, where the stones went to certain chakras and I would make pieces specifically for certain conditions and ailments and stuff. And so I would make these pieces a long time ago. And, you know, it was like every time I made one, I went to this meditative state. And during that time was when my dreams started, they started going like so crazy. It was just like, I was, stones were coming. I, I like birds, like all these, like stones I had never seen or heard before. I would dream about stones, names of stones I had never heard before. And then wake up like, what is that stone? And have to look it up in a book. Like it was like, they would, they were becoming that, that uh, strong. And Recently, because I started getting, I got back into the stones again, like they're, they're a huge part of me now. And now the dreams, they're starting to become more and like stronger and stronger and stronger with my, due to my connection with stones. And I think that for some of us, you know, we all have these different senses that we are able to use out of, outside of our five senses, right? Like our, our uh, psychic seeing, our psychic hearing, our psychic tasting, all of these abilities. And for a lot of some people, they can very clearly, the clairvoyance, they can see really easily when they start to work on developing these senses. And for me, it's never been about seeing, you know, seeing has never been my way of receiving information, but dreams have, you know, so it's almost as if like certain aspects for us will be stronger in certain ways. And it's like almost as if my dreams will be the ones to teach me a lot of things and show me a lot of things, show me a lot of places. Like before I moved to San Diego, I kept dreaming about going to this big field and walking across this field and going down these trail, like this like little meandering path in the evening where it was lit up and there were like little, little like what looked like tiny horse stables or something. Like they were like tucked in the, in the back. And I kept dreaming about this like four or five times. And then I moved to San Diego and I'm walking around Balboa Park at night and I'm like, oh my God, this is a place. This was the place oh. I was in my dreams. Like that happened. It, it happened when I, before I moved to San Diego, it happened before I went to India. There was a specific house that I kept going to in my dreams. And I remember the fence outside of the house and the, the cobblestone sidewalk was very, very crooked and it was really narrow. And I remember being in this house as, as, a person in this house. And, and I, and I just was like, where, where did I go? And I'd wake up like, what, what was that about? And then I go to India and I'm walking down the street and I'm like, oh, this is the house. This is the fence. This is the house, you know? So it's almost as if like my dreams sometimes will prepare me for my next life's adventure to a certain degree, you know? And so there's, you know, and I want to say it's about dream books. Again, the same thing with the cards, with the crystals, they're helpful you know, but they are not the be all end all. So like whatever you, whatever signs are coming to you in, in your dreams are coming to you for a specific reason. And it's a matter of us figuring out what that reason is for us. So it's really important to keep a dream, dream journal. 
Right, right, right. No, this is this is fascinating. Yeah, there's a there's a lot here. I mean, some of the things that that you have shared, I can very much relate to. One thing that you said is that you stopped having uh, that kind of lucidity and stuff. I think at at 16 is that something? No, you... that was that was like 28 when that oh, happened. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because they they do say there's a lot of research now that shows that kids up to a certain age, I think it's before the age of seven, predominantly all their dreams are lucid dreams. Yeah. And I don't remember a lot about my dreams when I was before seven, but I know that all my life I, well, I was really young. And I think this is most kids, the kind of perception I had was radically different. Things were more or less just say magical in quality. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, kids for them, if you talk to them, oftentimes their description is very fluid and very magical. Mm-hmm. And the things that they think are possible. So, um, so in a way, I'll, this connects back to the previous team that we we live in a culture yeah. which is very wake centric, where only the waking state is honored and not so much deep sleep or or dreams. Whereas in other indigenous yeah. cultures, again, uh, if you just look at all the beautiful things that you have shared with us, like you are almost talking about precognition, mm-hmm. which is of events that are about to take place. One could even question the fluidity of time, you know, and mm-hmm. all this stuff is is uh, is what we call psychonaut, you know, it's like an astronaut in your own uh, inner realms. And um, in the West, unfortunately, it's not that they are studied, they're just outright dismissed for yeah. the most part. Yeah. And uh, one thing that you said about keeping a journal, and this is one of the things that I've really noticed, is that the very act of keeping a dream journal radically increases the number of dreams I can remember. Mm-hmm. It's not even that I ever look at the journal, but the fact that I, I honor my dreams by saying I, it is always by my bedside and I, I jot them down. If I wake up at three or 4 a.m. and I was like, oh, what was I dreaming? And then it starts just pouring in. Uh-huh. And so this uh-huh. has become normal. But if I look from the times when I did not have a dream journal yeah, to the fact that I have them and I always at night, uh, more so now, I, I'm, I recognize the fact that I'm going to enter a different kind of space yeah. And uh, that might have messages for me. And yeah. clearly, um, as you keep dream journals, you notice, I always notice when I get up in the morning, the way I feel, like my emotional state and uh, the sensations in the body are often tied to mm-hmm. what kind of dreams I had mm-hmm. the night before. So it clearly uh, flows into even how you feel in the day. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. So... This kind of brings us maybe into to kind of adding these all these amazing modalities that that you, we have been exploring with you from crystals to dreams and ritual and ancestors that you have kind of distilled through your own experience as a healer and you've created this modality. So maybe you can share about how you've brought them together. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll tell you a little story of why this was even a thing, why this became a thing for me. Because I had like, like I said, I work a lot with the elderly and terminally ill patients, lots of cancer patients. And the one patient I had mentioned before that was dealing with, that was young and her, her father was an anesthesiologist. This was the same patient, but she, the cancer that she had, she was only 33 when she was diagnosed with stage three, stage four uterine ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer is very, very, very 
it's like one of the most deadly cancers because by the time you realize that you have ovarian cancer, it's usually already spread to multiple organs. And the rate that you're that that you would be able to catch it before it spread even further is, is very small, even with tons of chemo. So it, it, the the death rate is very high for uh, ovarian cancer. And she was 33 when she was diagnosed. And I remember one time when I was working with her, this was before, I mean, I was still using crystals and stuff in her treatment, but I, like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. But I remember I said to her one day, one of our sessions, like her and I had very kindred souls and I just opened up to her and it was like, you know, I really feel like you, your cancer is a spiritual cancer. And I didn't even know what the heck I was saying. I was just like, I knew, I felt strongly that if she healed her soul and spirit, that this cancer would, would go away. And at the time I didn't have all of the tools to, to help her, but it, it like was, it like planted this seed in me that I really wanted to heal on this deeper level, deeper than on the level than just my acupuncture needles and my herbs can heal. Because what I'm learning now is that, you know, there's different levels of our healing and the, the top level of our healing is dealing with the physical. So dealing with the body through, you know, surgeries, uh, medications, herbs, acupuncture, massage, all those things heal like the physical. And then when you want to heal like the deeper parts of what's going on with the person, you have to go to deeper modalities. And, and then I was left to find this modality of healing with crystals and gemstones. And so recently now it's like she planted that seed that I wanted to understand how to heal on a deeper level. Then that was about like three years ago. And so that fast forwards more recently, and I brought it all together in a way that really does address these issues. When, when I, you know, when I'm treating someone and I'm like, yeah, I know that you have this problem, but the real reason is way deeper, mm-hmm. way deeper than you are even physically aware of how deep that it goes. Because, you know, you start, you start to pick up on these things as a wild being practitioner. So basically what I developed from these crystal, like getting in touch with healing with crystals in this way is that. Well, there's a way that you can, as an acupuncturist, there's like a set of acupuncture meridians that are called the eight extraordinaries, which I mentioned the other time, I think. And so the eight extraordinary, yeah, they heal on a very deep level. There's, there's 12 primary channels, right? And then there's, there's all these other categories of channels that we use to heal the physical body with. And then the eight extraordinary are like, they go to the absolute deepest level of the, of the physical body. So they go to the level of what's called the Jing, which is what we call the essence. So it's like when we're, when we're created, when we are conceived in utero, we are conceived with the essence from the mother and the essence from our fathers. And they join together and that's how we are created. Within that essence comes all of the, our parents' beautiful DNA that created us into these beautiful, amazing humans. But also in that comes a lot of what we were talking about, the ancestral lineage, like the, the unresolved traumas that our parents have inherited from their parents and their parents' parents all of that gets passed down into um, the child, right? So we come into this world with some stuff that is like not necessarily ours and we do our best with this stuff, right? And for some people, this stuff starts to really affect how they operate in the world and it affects how they relate in the world and the stories that they tell themselves in order to relate to the world, which leads to these programs of belief patterns that they subscribe to in order to, to be in this world, right? So it, mm-hmm. it's this whole snowball package. And so when you heal on the, with crystals, crystals, uh, because they come from the earth, like they're made from materials of the earth and they, they're made up of all of like the different periodic elements from the periodic table, 
they contain all of that. They're like the fundamental building blocks of life is, is within the crystals. So when you mm -hmm. learn how to apply them to these specific channels, you're able to tap into the essence of the person. You're able to tap into the, the stories, the programming. You're able to tap into the ancestral, the, the deep ancestral traumas, the deep traumas that a person's experienced, PTSD, all of these things that, you know, we, we're, we're learning to fix with Western medicine, but we're like barely touching the surface. The stone addresses from like a very deep level. So once I understood this and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this was a missing piece for me because in acupuncture school, they didn't talk, we didn't learn anything about crystal and stone medicine. And we barely learned anything about the eight extraordinary. So my teacher has brought them together in this beautiful package. And it's like, as soon as she, as soon as I went to that class, it was like, boom, like the lights went off. Right. So, and so then I'm like, okay, I can heal my patients and physically, like I know I, I'm like, oh, good. I can start placing stones on certain channels and opening up things, you know, immediately because I'm an acupuncturist, I was able to do that. But then I'm thinking about like how I really want to help people from a distance. And I know that the crystals have such a powerful vibration in them that they can work in healing from a distance. And so how can, can I do this? And so we, we had a series of like group talks where everyone shared their different modalities on how they do distance work. And so based off of what, you know, it's kind of just pulling in like what was really resonating with me and like what I can really pull into my practice. And I developed my own way of treating, which is very, very unique. And it's pretty much using a hologram of a person on a specific special paper that has these sets of lines in the corner in, four, in the four corners of the paper that acts like a, like an amplifier. So it's almost like a, like a magnifying piece of paper. So it's whatever you put in the center of this paper, it, it like, you can project it out into the world. And so, you know, when I do distance work, it's all about receiving the permission from the person, right? They give me the permission to actually go within and do this work for them. And so once, once that, that connection is established, I create the, I actually, you can do a lot of things, but I actually draw the person. I take a picture of the person and I draw them into, onto the paper and I give them a full body and everything. And what's really interesting is like, even in the drawing, sometimes you start, to, you start to know where they're holding stuff. Because you're drawing and all of a sudden you're like, why is that person? I drew that person's shoulder in their ear. Well, clearly they must have something that they're holding in their left shoulder, you know? And so you start to it, like intuitively connect to the person. So I draw them out and then I use a pendulum over the drawing to check their chakra centers based off of where, um, like what's going on with their chakras based off of the reading of the pendulum. I've been using pendulum for a long time. So I have, you know, I know my, the signs for yes and no, close, open, like, it's like you just have to connect with your pendulum in that way. And so I use it over the, the picture and then they, it will pick up immediately on what chakras are open and closed on the person. And then based off of that, there's a way that I use kind, blue kyanite and clear quartz to actually read what's going on in the chakras. And, and just literally, I just connect with the crystals, open myself up and hold it there and just open myself up to whatever information is coming in um, from the crystals. And so whatever information I take some notes to take notes on what chakras are open, what chakras are closed, what information comes through. And then I begin the treatment with the actual stones. And so what I do is that I use my pendulum over the stones and I know based off of the cup, I have a conversation with the person first. So based off of the conversation, I have a general idea on what extraordinary channel wants to be opened. And then once I, I keep that always in the forefront of my mind. And as I go through the stones with the pendulum, like the pendulum will, will, you know, tell me absolutely yes for some, absolutely no for others. 
And some that are like, yeah, I guess I could work. I couldn't, you know. So I go through all the stones with the pendulum and I pull, I pull them out, I pull them all out to the side. Like, okay, you guys want to work? You guys want to work? Great. Okay, we have my pile here. And then I go over the stones that want to work again with the pendulum. Because sometimes when you pull those stones out from the main group to the side group, there were stones that were really excited about working. But then when they get to the smaller group, they realize, oh, no, this isn't my treatment. This is this is this stone's treatment instead. So then, they'll, so then all of a sudden you do a second pass. And then some of the stones that work, like vibrating highly first they're not the second round so then i pull those back so it's like really refining the treatment and basically the pendulum is what tells me the channel that wants to be open a lot of the times there's a lot of misspellings and the, it, it's crazy like how it comes out of me and then that's the message for them and so i what i'll do oh i forgot to mention i do these treatments while the person is sleeping so i start the work on them say that they go to bed at 10 o'clock at night i start it at the process at nine o'clock so by the time that 10 o'clock hits at night, they are already asleep. And the reason why I do this is because to get to get the conscious mind out of the way, because our minds are so powerful right. and they're so busy that it's really important to get the mind completely out of the way as much as possible. So I do the stones work over eight hours. So I leave the stones on the hologram of them for eight hours for the night. And then I, I sit and I do the automatic writing. And then in the morning, I again play sound over them and I remove the stones and I send them the message that I received from the stones the night before. And then that's considered like one treatment. And then like, we also meet afterwards to discuss because sometimes, you know, it brings up a lot, like one round of this type of work brings up a ton and there's questions. And so we always have like a debriefing after a session. We have a talk before and a talk after. And yeah, that's, that's my process that I, that I go through with these, with these treatments. And it's been, yeah, it's been really powerful. No, thank you so much for, you know, taking, taking uh, everybody with you. I mean, you've, you've shared a lot of detail and I'm thankful that you did because, you know, even uh, again, as a, as a kind of like a, like a, like a scientist, I try, you've broken down the steps. You've spoken of intuition and you've spoken of how to take the patient's conscious mind out of the way. You've talked about automatic writing and how you, I think you mentioned that you uh, pointed towards your navel area, I believe. Yeah, it's like a solar plexus, like kind of yeah. like, uh-huh. Very interesting because uh, I heard from um, from somebody in the context of uh, Ved- Vedas or Ayurveda uh, that they had pointed out that a lot of the hidden um, kind of even past traumas of the resentment or anger, they said just, I was told once to massage the navel area with one hand uh, and then just keep a pen and paper handy and whatever just comes up in the moment. Great. Yeah. Just, uh, just put it. And it was, uh, I did not do it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not do it. But, you know, as you mentioned that it, it, it came to me and I would, I would like to, I do massage my navel though. Let's just say that I haven't done automatic <laughs> writing but every day. Yeah. I do massage the navel, which was told to me from different perspectives, but that writing was one. So it just flashed in my mind. But yeah, this is, this is really, uh, really rich. And, well, first of all, it's it's very creative. One thing that you highlighted a couple of times is intuition. Uh-huh. So um, when you use the pendulum, uh-huh. is that facilitating your intuition? Is it tapping uh-huh. you into that or is there no. a different... Yeah. So there's, yeah. Using a pendulum is a way to like get your, you and your intuition out of the way. And you're more like connecting to like source energy so to speak. Oh, wow. So it's not necessarily like I have mine here. 
So it's not necessarily about, you know, it's not about me making, because you can with your mind, like, like right now, right? I can say, show a sign for yes. Okay, thank you, stop. Show a sign for no. Okay, thank you, stop. Show a sign for I don't know. It just stops dead in the middle. So mm-hmm. it's more like you can you can make it. I could tell it to stop. I could tell it to go. But the idea is that you do not do that. <laughs> You're like, you know, when I use it over the crystals, it's literally like over like over the crystals. Like, you know, like I have this this pretty. I guess I, you know I think this is like a purple. This one was found in like Escondido, and I don't really. I, I think it's like a purple uh, fluorite. I think it's so pretty, wow. but yeah, like I'll use the pendulum on it and just see what happens. But when I do this, I'm not like, I'm not holding any thought in my head. I just want to see, you know? And so this, this blue kyanite here has a smaller, has a smaller pattern. Right. And then this one has a bigger pattern. And so like, you know, I've been using the pendulum over chakras over my patients for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, just checking their chakras, just going up, like holding it like two, three inches above their body and working their way up to the chakras. I've been doing that for a very long time. So I've been using pendulums for a while and I know, and I realize, like, yeah, I, I can, you have to get, you have to get yourself out of the way and you have to just let the pendulum do connect to source and for the pendulum to do the work. And, but that, and that takes some time because the mind is very powerful, you know? So it's a matter right. of like, really turning off your mind. And like, so sometimes, you know, for a long time, I would ask my pendulum all sorts of questions, like all sorts of questions. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Because you can literally make it answer what you want it to answer to. That's what you don't want to do. You don't want to do that. You know, so that's when I use it over, over stones and over crystals and over chakras, because it's literally tapping into like the the energy center that's there and connecting to the source energy. Yeah, no, that, that that is beautiful. Yeah, um, the thing that kind of, if I was to relate to that, what comes to me is that being having been doing meditation and you know uh, for for a little bit of time, I noticed that oftentimes at the end of the meditation or even during the meditation, I would get an insight about something that I'm thinking about, like a question. Yeah. So a kind of a process. It's not really a process, but a, something that I feel like strongly that it works is. Then you have deep contemplation about something, kind of like yeah. an open-ended contemplation where you're just honoring the question that is appearing mm-hmm. and not worrying about the answer. Then yes. when you're actually stop contemplating, if you've done, you've honored that contemplation enough that I really care about this question, the answer comes through. So this is kind of, uh, I, I so found it very long, Yeah, it's along the same line because you're getting yeah. yourself out of the way. You know, you put your thought out there, you put it out there and then you move, you move over. And you say, okay, right. of course, it's up, yeah. you know. And, and I think that a lot of times in, in science, you know, when you have people like Einstein, uh, for example, because he's a cultural yeah. icon, uh, his, one of his biggest work, um, which was a relativity, came, the actual inspiration came through a dream mm. in which he was riding on, uh, on a wave of light. So he was able to see if I was, the whole idea was if I was as fast as light, how will the world appear to me? Yeah, and I think that dream was an inspiration, and it's happened in science so many times mm-hmm. where the actual inspiration has come through dreams. So this connects yeah. to both the topic of dream, but also when the when the gross mind, the our critical mind, gets out of the way, which happens yeah. in sleep, dream, and 
I don't know. I was a little worried. I was like, don't get hypnotized, Naja. <laughs> We've got a few more questions. So, so would you say that it's also partly a little bit of kind of like a hypnotic suggestion thing happening there? No, because really? it's usually just me. Like, it's just me and the pendulum. And so it's it's not, and I'm literally holding it over the stone. So I'm just seeing how it reacts to the stone. I'm just observing oh, it its reaction. Okay. You know, I'm not going into it as much as I'm observing what it's doing. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, awesome, awesome. So um, you mentioned automatic writing. Is that something that could be used in the creative writing process, in poetry and writing? Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that I was doing that. I didn't know that this was a, like one of, one, of, one of my things. I didn't even know. And I think I, I have been using it and just didn't know what it was until, until recently when I started working with doing distance treatments and feeling that like really strong pull to just sit down and just to connect for a second. And then the, the impulse to write was just so strong. I couldn't discount it anymore as anything else than this subtle way of, cha- of channeling. Oh, that's very beautiful. I, I noticed that when I write, mm-hmm. there are times where something is so palpable that it just kind of pours itself out. Mm-hmm. There's no one really doing the writing there. It's just, it's just coming, pouring out of you, right? Yeah. And sometimes as you're talking about all these different ways of tuning into different things, yeah. I notice that certain things can trigger that, that sense that something just gets, starts to flow out. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And that's, again, it's like you, you tapping into this higher consciousness, you know, and tapping into like this, this divine source energy that is there for all of us. You know, it's like you, it's like we can, we connect to it. When we connect to it, that's when like these things happen. And it sounds like you, you have the ability to, the thing is, is that we all have the ability to do these things. It's not like you and I are the chosen ones that can write this. It's just that we have taken the time to kind of nurture these parts of ourselves more so than another person, you know, but we all have these abilities. We all do. Yes. No, and uh, that, that's a very good point that, that you bring. I mean, this conversation that we have had, I think is partly also rich because you have also been giving tutorials mm-hmm. of your actual process in each of these. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a question that came up was how does one become a healer? Someone, you know, people might be hearing this and they might recognize and then that they want to be a healer or there is a potential. Yeah. What would you say to them? I probably would, first I would get really, ask them to get really clear into their intention on why they want to help. I think that's the the biggest thing Um, because sometimes we think that we want that and it's not really the case. You know, it, it might be some, something that we maybe were told that we should do. It might be something that, we want to do because it'll make our our families proud of us or, you know, it's just really good to get clear as to why, because when you decide to go down the path of a healer, it's going to change you. It's going to change you in the deepest ways. When you say I'm going to become a healer, you are ultimately saying that like, I am going to walk this path. I'm going to walk this path and, and it's going to shift everything. It's going to shift the way that I treat my body. It's going to shift the way that I look at the world. It's going to shift the way that I look at others, you know, all of it. I mean, that was, I think the thing that when I originally found acupuncture school back in like the year 2000, I think 2001 in New York city. And I 
found the school and I was so excited. I was like, this acupuncture was like, whoa, this is so cool. And I immediately was like ready to sign up. But then there was this hesitation in me too, you know, because I was 20 and it's like, what do you, what did I know at 20 years old? I didn't really know much. And so I, and I'm really grateful for that hesitation because I was just about to enroll in acupuncture school at the age of 20. But I knew that if I did, I knew that if I signed up and I enrolled in courses then that it would change me. And I wasn't necessarily completely ready for that change. Mm-hmm. So I think those, I mean, it's a getting clear on what your intentions are and understanding that you, when you say those words, that you are going to change. And, and if you are okay with that and you're like, yes, I want to do that. And yes, my intentions are completely clear with wanting to do it, then go for it because you will be so happy. You will never, never look back. And I, and I think this, kind of dovetails into something that we talked earlier, which was purpose and permission at the very get-go. Yes. So it seems it's also also connected to that. So yep. another question that is kind of related is around the topic of healing is you being a healer, this is a very kind of role of tremendous compassion and empathy, and you're doing a lot of subtle processes as well. So I can only imagine that, of course, one is it, it can be taxing, but at the same time, how do you guard or protect your own energetic system? Well, when we were talking about rituals earlier, one, one ritual that I'll do, especially if I, if I had like a really heavy session, because sometimes you can just feel it, especially like when I was doing massage and stuff, like you could literally pick up the pains of your clients, you know, like all of a sudden you have low back pain, all of a sudden you have neck pain because you just work with someone with neck pain and they leave and they're like, I feel great. And you're like, yeah. ow, you know, cause you yeah. literally took all of their pain into your body, you know? Right. So one of the things that you, that I do when that happens is go into the sink and gather water in my hands and like I literally imagine whatever I picked up to like go find its way to my hands and into this water and I hold a bunch of water in my hands and then once once I feel as though it's all in the water I release it and then sometimes I'll do it like two or three more times and release and then when I do the energetic work when I do distance work and I'm connecting on a spirit level there's like certain things that you could do. There's like this one where you, it's like a state of healing and you rub your hands and then you have one hand go in front of you, one hand out. So I'll do that a series of three times, which always breaks the energy really quickly. And then I also, I wear this bracelet here, which is, let's see if I can lower into the camera more. Mm -hmm. It's this just looks, it's like a bangle. It looks like, but it's actually charged with the Schumann resonance. So it's, by this company called Mystech. It's M-Y-S-T-E-C-H, mystech.com. And so they specialize in creating metal and crystal jewelry that is imbued with certain frequencies. And this particular one is of the, the Schumann resonance. So it acts as like a grounding force for me on a daily basis. And then of course, stones and crystals and stuff, like just holding them and things like that. And occasionally, like water is very powerful for reabsorbing things that don't belong to you. Like that's with this one, but also taking baths, you know, are, and, and with Epsom salt too, Epsom salt like really pulls out of the body. And then uh, if you have like in, in the home, if your home is like kind of feeling like there's maybe you had someone over and they, their energy wasn't that great and you just, the, it, it just doesn't feel right in your home anymore. You can always do Palo Santo or Sage. And then I also do these, uh, these, a ritual called the Cosmic Campfire which is pretty much Epsom salt and alcohol. And you put it in like a heat safe container 
and it creates this white flame and it's like the flame that purifies all things so it's like when people are, do like energetic clearings of land of homes and things like that that's what you use you use a cosmic excuse me cosmic campfire to really blast the space and clear it all out so wow. that, that's pretty much what i do no that's that, that's incredible yeah thank you mm-hmm. i was not expecting that you you had a, such a powerful list <laughs> two of these kind of resonate to me of course as we were talking about the elements the shower has been even the visualization and you know it again connects back to the power of our imagination which is a huge theme in itself mm-hmm. to kind of just unraveling that deeper and deeper as to what actually is the impact of things that that happen connected mm-hmm. to how we feel about them and the other one i've uh, been in a in a yoga center with this famous teacher uh, named sadhguru yeah. and um, in tennessee and one of the rituals they have is called klesha nashna kriya which is uh, basically like a fire wash So while you sit down and kind of like a medit and meditate people have these like long leaves of a certain tree and then there's fire and they're kind of like brushing you with this fire still at a safe distance. Yeah. It kind of clears up your energetic system and they recommend to do it once every 6 months. Yeah. Something uh, similar you could do at home like at the very minimal sit with your front body facing towards a lamp like a fire lamp and then expose your spine your back side. Mm. Yeah, fire is a very cleansing, purifying element, you know. And so, yeah, using using fire for sure and smoke. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's shift to a quick topic that you you said that you had some views and you had heard a podcast by a gentleman named Shankar Vedanta on NPR. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. this kind of connects to an earlier subject, which was why are we seeing this resurgence? Not resurgence so much, but explosion in. people being fascinated with conspiracy theories and during the this time of the pandemic i think we did touch on that but what what have you what are your own thoughts and the thoughts that you would like to share yeah you know i think conspiracy theories definitely pop up because mainly because it's something to believe in and i think that you know we've lost our faith in a lot of ways in a lot of systems and i think that ultimately it's because we've ex- we've seen and we've experienced so many traumas collectively uh that have happened in our world and in order to make sense of these traumas we create these stories and then the stories be just become easier to swallow mm. and the stories are easier for us to to attach belief to because because of the lack of faith that we have in humanity in our society in the collective consciousness and it's just it it allows a way for it just allows a way for people to connect in a in a different way you know because and if you if you find you know each conspiracy theory has its people right and so then the, the people that that subscribe to that conspiracy theory that, that that's like a form of community you know and and so and and in that brings comfort for a lot of people so Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's because we want to believe and I think that having faith has become a thing that we have struggled with especially when a large percentage of people have experienced trauma. And any time right. that we've experienced trauma in life and we have been told through different religious organizations that we might have been that that we are a part of or have been a part of in the past and 
you know, the different religions are saying that God is here, is all loving and protecting. And, and you know, that's like the, the ultimate gist of what God is. And then you have an experience that's extremely traumatic. And then you are automatically thinking like, well, there can't be a God if, if God allowed this to happen, right? So that it, it's, you shut down your faith right there, you know? And then, and then that, that, that leads to another topic to me about skeptics, which is for another day. But yes. yeah, it leads right into that because, you know, ultimately if you can't, if you had it, something that was so traumatic that it, it made you shut down your ability to believe having conspiracy theories is a, it's a way to allow you to make these pieces to reignite your ability to believe again, which is ultimately what we want, but not in the sense of creating these uh, stories on things that necessarily aren't true, you know, but I do think that, that the, our, we need to figure out another way to satiate the need to believe again. Wow. You know, what I really appreciate about you, Naja, is that um, you, you brought on the horizon of every topic that we have talked about. Hmm. And that's why we have talked about so many things. Yeah. But what you also point out uh, a beautiful thing, uh, which is our need as humans to believe, uh -huh. have faith. Uh -huh. And that just triggered to me as a kid growing up or as a young teenager, I was obsessed with the X-Files. Yeah. And <laughs> their slogan was, there was this kind of flying saucer and underneath there was the slogan, I want to believe. Uh -huh. That was the on the, you know, the, the hero of the movie was the FBI agent delving yeah. into all these conspiracy theories, mostly to do with aliens. But yeah, there is this, this kind of deep need. And I, you highlighted this, I think because we don't have this perhaps immediate history, because we've been cut off and dismissed ancestral history. So then there is a, which I think provides also a container and meaning to life. Yeah. And of course there is also truth to, to most of it. So when that is cut off, what do people fall back on Yeah, when these traumas happen? There, there's no container. And oftentimes I think, I was hearing this recently, this was kind of a puzzle to me because oftentimes in certain, even in certain spiritual circles, traumas are not really given attention because they're like, oh, you're already the self, you're the spirit and the spirit hence is free of trauma. So, you know, so that, that that's a, sounds like good, but you know, oftentimes it's not accessible. Mm -hmm to the person and so that doesn't really help anyone but in, in another point was you know some people might have the same set of events happen to them which traumatize them but the same event might not traumatize one person but another person gets traumatized and I you know I always wondered why that was and the answer that I heard from someone in some kind of a podcast I believe was that how the people around you support viewing the trauma so I was like wow that was like a light bulb I'm sure there are other reasons, mm -hmm. but you know, your immediate family or whatever the people around involved in the trauma or who are witnessing that, if that was, if that supported you witnessing off that process, it might completely free you from that trauma yeah. while it was happening. So anyways, I don't know if you had to, to say something, but I, I really love that you connected these various aspects. Yeah. And I think like on a more like a physical level when we talk about trauma and and what it does inside of like the physical body is that like you know we have the the autonomic nervous system it's like a fight or flight right or that's like the one aspect which is like the sympathetic and then the parasympathetic is like rest and digest those are like the main ones that we talk about and then one one that we don't ever really talk about is the freeze is what happens in the freeze state because and that's when when we really experience trauma it's the freezing 
that's what happens. And physiologically in the body, what that looks like is like the actual blood that circulates in a person's body freezes mm. and it stops moving and it becomes stagnant. And then that's when you just start, people start to have all sorts of like nerve pain, neuropathies, they have, you know, all these really interesting things that are chronic conditions that, that show up. It, it tends to come from when physiologically, when you've experienced trauma and the body just freezes, literally freezes. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's why it's really important. Like you said to when that happens, it's like, you have to, you have to like unfreeze yourself. And sometimes that does come along in lines of like reliving traumas, unfortunately, or if you right. know someone that can help you safely walk, you know, through it in a, in a more spiritual way, you know, it's very helpful too. Right, right. Fascinating. Yeah. And so we touched on a lot. Is there anything that comes to you? I'm sure that you, you have been thinking, thinking about the subject of how to process collective trauma. You know, we're currently living in a, in a time where it's a lot of trauma is resurfacing. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm sure people think that pandemic has also traumatized in some way. I have actually been seeing it more as a positive, as allowing stuff to come to the surface so it can be dealt with in a way. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I was just curious to see, how, I'm sure you have contemplated this. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, in, in a lot of different ways. The, and like the, like how to release collective trauma is like with the light, you, you know, like operating on, operating from the light. And like what that looks like for each individual might be different, but ultimately it's like the highest energetic, the, just the highest energy on that we know of is love, like unconditional love, you know, and really embodying that, operating from that, operating from like a place of compassion can really help to heal a lot of that. And, you know, when you think about the, the beings and the people and the animals that have suffered, you know, and holding, holding them in, in light. You know, and whatever that looks like for you, whether it's just the thought, you know, a, like a short visualization or with crystals and stones, having conversations with people about like, you know, what, what this looks like to you, what this, like how we're talking right now, you know, this conversation is like being held in the light because of what the topics that we're covering. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting thing because yeah, we are all a part of it, even the dark part. We're all a part of it, but how do we get past it? How do we move through it? Is that we have to continue to hold ourselves and everyone else in the light and keep shining that, you know, and eventually it'll outweigh the part that's dark and that dark part will eventually completely go away. But until then, we just have to keep holding, holding that light, holding that space for humanity. That, that is very inspiring. And I, I like that, how you kind of simplified it, that to keep operating from the light. And mm -hmm. I think that, that by itself is it's pro probably that is everything. That's the whole of the thing is if you can keep doing that, then yeah. only, only good things can come out of that place. So kind of bringing it back full circle. Maybe this was a, a topic I've been meaning to speak to you about. It is the topic of death. And yeah. we earlier spoken of your experience in hospice and palliative care. Pretty much every topic that you've talked with about, you know, in this meeting of ours connects with it in one way or the other. So Maybe to begin with, what have been the most powerful insights for you personally? And then maybe also later we can connect with what have you observed or what would you advise to, to people in general? Yeah. yeah. I can't remember if I had mentioned to you how, because I wrote a story about it recently, about how when I moved to San Diego and how I was walking down the street and I was just having literally, I mean, 
some of my best conversations I have are literally, literally with myself. <laughs> Just say that out loud. That's Everybody nice. knows that I talk to myself all the time. I am my own best friend. And I think we all are typically, you know, like we always like kind of like check in with ourselves. And I, I was walking down the street and I said, you know, what is my purpose in San Diego? Like, what am I here to learn? And this voice very clearly, that wasn't me said, you're here to learn about that. And and I was like, huh, okay, I don't really <laughs> know how to take that, but you know, I'm here. So, all right, let's see what happens, you know? And, and so I knew very early on of me moving here that I, that's what I was here for, not realizing that it would take the shape of losing a lot of very near and dear friends, which can on, you know, I think, wait, did you start Pima Shakti? Yes, yes, we, we. That's where we met with which Jonathan. A yoga program, yeah. I know. I, I never met Jonathan. You never, you never met him. Okay, I couldn't remember if you had met him or not. But yeah, it was. You know, I had worked with the founder of our yoga school for maybe like a year and a half before you before you got there. And yeah, he he died at the age of forty four. He had a massive heart attack, and he was probably like the fourth person that I had lost within like a couple years. And that one was the absolute hardest because he and I were like brother and sister. It was as if like, I, I really looked to him as my brother, like my older brother that had all of this knowledge and all this information and him and I, I would like follow him around with like a little puppy dog. And I would just like, like eat up every single word that he said about yoga and the way that he saw like the potential in each, in each student. And, you know, I was just enamored with him as a human being. He was so kind and so gentle and yeah, he died. He dropped, he just dropped at the age of 44 and that death was so shocking to me. And it, it, it was, that grief was intense. And I think then, I think it was three months before we lost a student. He had an, a student had a heart attack. And then within a year, we went to India to visit Jonathan's teacher, Suresh. And then within a month of us coming home, his teacher died of a massive heart attack. Then I lost my dear friend, John, who was my earliest mentor here in San Diego. He had cancer and lost his battle with cancer like three years ago, that's just in my personal life. And, you know, I always wanted to work with patients along the lines of death. It was either like with birth or with death. Like I, I went into the spectrum. It's at the beginning or it's at the end. And in my schooling, I, I just felt more like, and also I heard that voice, right? Telling me I was here to learn about death. So I immediately wanted to work with hospice and palliative care. And so I wound up working with the San Diego Cancer Research, Research Institute, doing my externships for for my grad, my graduate degree in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And I stayed there for about a year and it was incredible what I was able to be a part of there. You know, like the very first patient I treated, you know, it's like, you know, you're, when you're in a, a situation where you're at a cancer center, everyone is facing death in some way, right? And every person is facing themselves or trying not to face themselves in some way, you know? So it was very, very interesting. Everyone was on a different different level of their, of their spectrum of like where they were on their journey. And in that time period, I was there for a year and I, I definitely, there was a couple of patients I buy. I, I really struck a tight bond with that past. And then, so that was a beautiful, beautiful place to be. And in, in that work of working closely with patients that are like literally staring, death is like right there. It allows for me as a practitioner to just hold that space for them and when you are in a position like that, nothing else matters. There's not one thing that matters. It doesn't matter how tired I am, if I have menstrual cramps. It doesn't matter if I'm extremely hungry. 
it, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. It doesn't matter. And it's and and every now and again, you know, you, I'm you're you're tired. You know, you're like, oh man, I wish I felt better going into to treat this patient or whatever the case may be. But then you then you're in the moment and you're like, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters except for this time with this person in this space. So it talk about perspective. Like it puts you into this alternate state of perspective where whatever it was that you were complaining about or thinking about in your life, you don't even remember afterwards because you've just been, you walked up to the door and you sat there with the person and you sat in those emotions and you sat in that state with them, you know, and you held that space right next to them. Then it's like, you forget, you forget all, all else that was there before all of it is gone. And it's, it's amazing. It's an, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing gift and an amazing experience. And, you know, working a lot with a local group here, Integrated MD Care, and I do uh, in-home treatments a lot. So I go into patients' homes and I treat them there. And, you know, walking in, I had this one patient and he was really, really sick. He was in a hospital gurney in his, in his living room. He was about like 60 pounds. 60 pounds and he was in his living room. And I was there to treat his his arm. He had some nerve pain going down his arm. And he had, I think it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, and he was in this bed because he couldn't really, he had a lot of lesions and on his spine and on his ribs. And so it was really painful for him to stand up and walk. And so I, I went into the, into his home, right? I'm in his, in his space and I go into, I go in to see him and the light that was coming out of his eyes was incredible. And you mm. could feel the fire, the life inside of him. You could feel it that he wasn't ready to go yet. You know, you can feel it, you know, you could, you, and it like, with the group, with the integrative group, like it was like the doctor, the nurse, myself, massage therapist, we all were like talking about this case and being like, yeah, he's just like, he, he does, he has so much life in him left. And so from that moment forward, we all gathered around, give him the best quality of life that he could ever have again. And then one day I remember going to his house. I was sorry, I was treating him regularly for a while and I went to his house and rang the doorbell and he had a caregiver there full time. So the caregiver would open the door. And I'm there and I'm like, do to do, ring the doorbell. And I'm like, let's go down to there. I hear stuff, but I don't know what's coming to the door. The next thing you know, he answered the door. My patient, 60 pounds that was in a hospital bed in his, in his living room, answered the door, fully dressed, completely like put together, walked himself to the door and opened the front door. And it was like the most amazing moment because, you know, you realize that, you know, sometimes the way that we see someone because you could easily someone could easily walk into that situation and be like wow we need to like this man needs to be put out of his misery you know but when you connect to the soul and you see it and we were like no nope. oh no he's not ready yet and we all saw it we were like no he's not ready yet and so we all were like let's just give him the best quality of life we possibly can and so he had the best year and a half he he a year and a half he had the best quality of life he was he went on trips he was all going out in nature. He was in his garden. He took up art again. Like, and then he decided, okay, now, now I am complete. And within like, you know, a couple of weeks of him making that decision, he was gone. Yeah. So it's, it's an, it's an honor. Yeah. No, thank you for, for sharing such an intimate story. Yeah. I think this aspect of connecting with people and seeing if their work of life is done, do they feel that it's complete? Uh, or they still have to go. It's such an important component. And that, again, in traditional cultures is, uh, is something that I feel like is mostly recognized. And it's, I've heard this before, even as a kid, rather than just seeing what their, what their state is. Yeah. 
So, and how has this kind of impacted how you live your day to day life? Do you have, has it, I'm sure it has changed your worldview and your philosophy. Do you remind yourself of certain things when you're not kind of centered in a certain frame, frame of mind? Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. Primarily, I think it just, it makes you more fearless. It just makes you more fearless. Like, you know, it, it, and it puts into, into perspective where the things that you might complain about that, that might seem like that it was so, like, it's such an important thing to you. And that in the moment is like so fleeting, you know, and really, you know, in my life, it just makes me just not hold on to stuff, you know, and just real, just realizing like the impermanence of it all and just releasing it as quickly as it comes, you know, sometimes like really have to move through, move through things and not hold on to it and not get stuck holding it, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a big one and the fearlessness in like living, you know, and, and knowing that like with cancer, cancer is like a physical manifestation of repression of emotion and, and putting yourself last or whatever the case may be. It's like this repression of of emotion done over like systematically like you it's like a a habit it's like habitual you don't you keep not taking care of keep not taking care of yourself keep you know you keep doing these things and then boom then you have cancer you know uh and so it it checks you you know you're like well clearly I, I have to be able to first of all not not have to stick stick to me I have to continue to move through things not digest things so deeply in me that they become part of my like my dna you know so it just really allows you to just like hold things and release and hold them and release them because you realize that at any moment it could change right and like how do you want to like how do you want your moments to be lived you know how do you want them to be strung together how do you want them to show like like if you had a hand of cards like how would you want them to be presented you know and then yeah and then you can like pretty much live unapologetically free in that way. And uh, yeah, and just have fun, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the main yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, we're talking about a fun topic, right? It's mm-hmm. it's, so, it's kind of paradoxical how you mentioned, beautifully highlighted a few things. It's also been kind of my experience. I think we're already touching on that and it's this fearlessness each time you integrate depth. And in my experience, it almost seems like a spiral that you keep revisiting and it keeps getting deeper and deeper. I can't say that I've become fully fearless i'm excited to see where where else it takes me but there is clearly this fear and i think the more free we we are from the fear the more we become in contact with our natural joy yeah you know i used to question the teachers i had in the it's like oh you know he has this crazy mind reading powers or he can maybe someone can fly and stuff that should be possible and now it's become less about that whether that's possible or not i feel like that's less important It, it is a recognition that you're already immortal but that immortality is part and parcel of things in a constant flux and transformation, which includes the character that you have right now, the body that you have right now. No, seriously. Yeah. And it's really about adapting to, to, to change, you know, and that's like the beauty of the seasons. And then that brings us all the way back to five elements, you know, is like, and, and with the five elements in Chinese medicine, there's a season attached to each one, you know? So it's like, it's just shows like how change is, it's definitely a huge part of it. We have to be able to flow with it. And the minute that we get stuck with one way of doing and one way of being, we have to be careful, you know, because it can definitely lead to some negative uh, physical side effects. Mm-hmm. But 
as I was speaking earlier, I feel like the, the victory from death or the fear comes from seeing, well, you can say you see the unreality of it in the way that the mind imagines it because it's a continuum that continues. And the surrender comes in to still give up the, the kind of the human existence that you have, the story. And then it kind of looks like almost like a work of an art. Yeah. That kind of concludes with, uh, with that. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, with some of the patients that I've lost, they have definitely shown, shown up to me after they passed, you know, mm. um, and my, the one patient that I mentioned, the one that, that got up and answered the door that day, <laughs> he showed up in, in, in coins for about like six months after he passed. I kept, kept seeing coins, kept seeing coins, kept seeing coins. And I knew it was him. Uh, mm. I lost another patient, a sweet woman, and she had um, she, another cancer patient. She was so sweet and she really loved butterflies. And she would always talk about how would she, uh, when she left this, this realm that she wanted to come back as butterfly. And, um, yeah. And then like one day it was like in the middle of winter, you know, and I'm walking to my car and this butterfly is just like, you know, and just right in my face. And I was so preoccupied with what I was doing. I didn't even realize it, 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 it like dawned on me later on in the day. I was like, she came and visited me as a butterfly today. <laughs> like how special is that? But yeah, right. I mean, they come, they come, they come to you, you know, um, and it shows you that the body is just the body, you know? And I, I went to um, Sedona with my mother. She lost her twin brother a couple of years ago, like three years ago, and uh, was having a very hard time. It, losing a twin is something that's very, 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 very challenging because it feels like a part of you is now gone. And she, we were, we went to this, this guy on the side of like one of the, I think it was like one of the, vortexes or vortices out there and he was selling some hats and he just looked like a guy selling hats on the side of the road and so we walk up to him and, and he and my mom's with me and he's like I'm like oh I'm looking at some hats and he's like so you know death is just like changing your clothes you just take off the shirt and you put on a new one and he just started speaking and he and he actually he was from India he was I, I don't know what, exactly what he was or but he had a bunch of books and everything there and that he said this line about the t-shirt and you knew that he was talking directly to my mother. Like it was as if like he had connected to her soul. And oh she, yeah. This is the message for you that the t the body is just a t-shirt and he's still here. He's still around you, you know? And then within like, I think the first anniversary of his passing, he, or, oh no, his birthday, their second birthday that since he passed, he, uh, he came as a swallowtail butterfly to my mother and literally sat on her shoulder and sat there for like at least like 10, 20 minutes this butterfly just came and just sat, you know? And so it just goes to show like, you know, we're, we're so much more than just this, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. The, the one reference that, that kind of along those lines, that's been alive for me has been, um, dream. Well, not, I won't call them dreams, but like visitations from one of my grandparents. Oh. It, and I, I was very close to her and yeah, as I've honored that more and more, I, that, that has been, a uh, living connection for me when I feel like I needed it the most. Yeah. Yeah. Very rich and uh, very deep, deep topic topic. So I think that's pretty much it from me. Do you have, do you have any closing thoughts or anything you wanted to share? <sighs> well, just that I hope everyone that, that is going to see or hear this really understands like the limitless power that they have inside of them. And that you are so much more than this physical body 
and the world is so much more than you can ever imagine. And for and, and invite everyone to really like step into that 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 deep imagination, that childlike nature, and to reconnect with those parts of yourself that really believe that all things are possible because we were all there at a certain point in our lives. So just invite everyone to reconnect back with that. Yeah, that's such a such a beautiful message. Thank you so much, Nadia. Welcome. It's my pleasure.